EOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, October the 18th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. So, real sign of the frosty weather with a frosty windshield this morning. Hopped in the rig, got, thought maybe just condensation, turned on the wipers. Oh, uh, no frosty windshield so here we go all right see new scored last night for montreal his third of the season albeit in a 5-2 loss at the hands of the minnesota wild new scores on his mother's birthday i'm sure that was a nice uh, surprise and present for her nice w would have been great as well and of course the newfoundland growlers get set to kick off their season friday night against the reading royals so they, the the roster of the lineup got bolstered yesterday when 11 players were cut by the toronto marlies and coming down to play in st john's but that gives a couple of days for new head coach matt cook to get a team in order to play on friday night so it's the double-edged sword as they say and blair burst yesterday we mentioned we told you yesterday that he was playing in the first stage of pga tour q school at the university of new mexico on their championship course he's tied for 40th you have to be in the top 20 to advance to the next stage so blair in pretty good shape and as you heard brian talking about all the home runs that the philadelphia phillies are hitting really quite a display of power it's on this date in 1977 reggie jackson playing for the new york yankees hit three consecutive home runs on first pitch off three different dodgers pitchers in the deciding game of the world series in the next game after that the first pitch jackson saw again home run so four straight pitches four straight home runs off four different pitchers he went on to hit five in the series won the mvp and then was born the nickname mr october on this date 1977 pretty good okay someone asked me to mention this uh oil rebate program that was in place last year and absolutely still in place this year people send me uh, photos of their oil bill looking at all the different taxes and what have you so if you qualify the oil sub the home heating supplement program is back in place here's how it works Eligible households receive a maximum supplement of $500, where the adjusted family income for 2022 was $100,000 or less. Partial supplement is available to households with adjusted family income for 2022 of more than $100,000, but less than or equal to $150,000, minimum supplement of $200. The adjusted family income is your net income. Okay, So you can take that off of line 23600 of the income tax return. There are some, you know, you have to provide an invoice that shows that you had the fuel of minimum of 250 liters for either stove oil or furnace oil. So that rebate program is in place. There are some exemptions if your net family income exceeds $150,000 if a spouse has died, if one of, your, uh, one of the spouse are living in a long-term care facility. So there's some exemptions available. Now, the deadline for application is November the 30th of this year. It takes about 10 days, or pardon me, 10 weeks from the date they're received before you get your money, whether it be direct deposit if you're set up with CRA that way, or in the mail. So there are still home heating supplement dollars out there. If you're eligible, absolutely should apply by no later than November the 30th. Add to it, and there was some mention of this in the uh, House of Assembly yesterday. We'll talk about all the inputs that have seen the increase in costs. We'll get to some grocery store, uh, uh, grocery store issues now in a second, but, you know, mention of Marine Atlantic. And then the fuel surcharge that was set to come into play in the spring, they push it to the end of the year, but it's absolutely coming. And we know the impact that has on just how many goods and services we import via Marine Atlantic, via Ocean X. Okay. 
What doesn't get discussed enough is a complete renegotiation of how Marine Atlantic operates. Now, they were trying to take the Premier to task on this one, and of course it's a federal uh, corporation, but we've got to reopen the contract. It's simply not working. We talk about it being our constitutional highway and linked to the mainland. The biggest problem for impact on fares and consequently the transportation of goods is that Marine Atlantic operates on a 65% cost recovery model. So 65% of operating costs have to be recovered by fares. So until that gets adjudicated and reduced drastically, we're still going to have some serious problems. And you add in the clean fuel regulations, Marine Atlantic burns somewhere in the neighborhood of 33 million liters of marine diesel annually. So the impact is obvious. You want to take it on? Let's go. So when the province gave us an update some while ago about the number of daycare spaces that had been created, Numbers can be misleading, right? They're talking about they added uh, 8,300 spaces, uh, 6,000 new spaces bought in 2021. The problem is, when we add them, we also lose them. So one of the advocates in the daycare world says that only 258 more kids in 2023 have access to regulated childcare spaces than they did in 2021. Not quite the numbers that the government brought forward. On that update day, the question was posed. How do we know what the demand really is? And where is the demand? And so we had no real tool to measure whether or not government's on the right track and satisfying the number of families that needed uh, a daycare space. And yes, $10 a day is great if you can find one. But now, thankfully, they've opened up a new child care portal or website where you can sign up to say you are looking for a child care space. You need to provide the age of the child, the type of care required, and whether or not your child is currently on a wait list. Then, and only then, when these numbers are compiled, will we really know exactly where we are. Because $10 a day sounded great, but it was absolutely the cart in front of the horse. If you had a space already, bravo. And when you hear stories of families and the woman is in her first or second trimester and already getting children on the list, the waiting list, of course, the issue is probably bigger than we understand, but there you're now opening, and it's a good idea. So it's the Child Care Demand Portal. I don't know if it's up and running quite yet, but it was announced yesterday, and it's a good idea because unless we know what the demand is, we don't know if we're satisfying it. So anyway, you want to take it on? Let's do it. This is a, you know, we talk about the fact that there's, you know, no more public exams. Yes, they, the students will be tested throughout the year, but not in that pressure packed up to 50% of your yearly grade because of your uh, public exams. There's different ways to assess where a student is, but then there's some confusing issues that I learned about yesterday. This is from a friend of mine who has a daughter in junior high. Daughter comes home and says that they are no longer going to be tested and graded, so consequently no GPA. What? So when they leave junior high, they will either have a designation of good or master, as opposed to a grade point. That absolutely comes with some complications. You know, how do you fill out a scholarship application, and when they're asking for how you did and your remarks and your GPA, you can say, well, I'm good, or I'm a master. What does that even mean? Look, I get it. I'm, not, I'm no expert in how to assess where students are. But I do know that if you take away all the ability to assign some marks, and it doesn't have to be through publics, and it doesn't have to be pressure-packed, because some students who could be quite bright have absorbed the curriculum, maybe crack under the pressure in that type of setting. But no grades whatsoever seems an odd one to me. Anyway, 
And I don't know exactly what went on here, but it's always an opportunity to have this conversation with our children, as difficult as it is. There is an investigation taking place with a potential child luring situation outside of Newtown Elementary in Mount Pearl yesterday. So again, the police will investigate and see what they can find out, but it's always worthwhile having that conversation. What do you think? All right. So yesterday we got the update from Stats Canada regarding inflation. I almost see, feel a bit silly talking about these numbers when they're not necessarily reflective of how it feels to be a taxpayer and a shopper. And you know, all the pressure that comes with inflation. So, okay. It decelerated from 4% in August to 3.8% in September. Fine. Doesn't really make me feel any further ahead or reestablishing some of my purchasing power. And then we get to the groceries. That's about becoming quite stubborn. Actually, they're talking about the impact of the price of gasoline, right? Okay. If gasoline is stripped out of the inflation numbers, the rate would still be 3.7%. That's down from 4.1% the month before. But here's the problem for most of us. is the bloody grocery shopping. There's a lot of trickery, it seems, and a lot of pretty unfair practices, in my personal opinion, when you go into the grocery store. So the food inflation numbers at this point, the cost of filling up a grocery basket has risen by 5.8%. That is down from 11% this time last year. There's some declining prices in things like grapes and some cheeses, bananas and bacon. Okay, it doesn't feel any better, but here's one of the issues that I've brought forward before, but now starting to frustrate me to no, to no end. One is when I hear from seniors and the fact that, you know, some of these so-called sales that you're offered in the grocery store, you know, the two jars of mayo for seven bucks versus three ninety-nine for one. Sounds okay if you've got a big family that consumes a lot of mayonnaise, but that's not really a sale. I mean, how many people are going to buy that product and get to use it before it expires? Not the best before date, but before it's gone bad in full. The other one that really does get my goat is the whole issue of shrinkflation. So, of course, input costs are up for the manufacturers. Fair enough. And they say, as opposed to simply passing along more of that input burden to the customer, what they do is they alter the size of the package or reduce the content therein. It's not breaking any rules. Right? Not breaking any rules. But it does feel pretty unfair. You know, should there be some federal standards that are evaluated just to give us the heads up? You look at the labeling. Sometimes when you look at nutrition and the nutritious content and or the ingredients, you got to bring a magnifying glass. That's one thing. Secondly, there's countries in the world that have made the manufacturer boldly announce on the package that the package, yes, may be bigger, but less, may indeed contain less of the product. So we're paying the same or more for less. The whole concept of shrinkflation, maybe just maybe, we should be given a big, bold warning because then you can make a decision because there's different varieties of different products. If the product that you're used to buying, you know, we all fall into those habits. You get that warning, say, wait now, it used to be 500 grams, now it's 400 grams, and I'm paying a dollar more. Oh, here's your competitor. They're still in lockstep with where they were prior. Maybe even pay 5% more, but you get the full 500 grams. So anyway, that's where inflation kind of bugs me. I don't know how it makes you feel, but let's take it on. What does that say? Oh, so yesterday, we saw a lot of reports about the fact that a number of RNC officers were at the tent city. Now, we've been told in the days past that the relationship between those living in the tents across the street from the Confederation building, the police were checking in on them. I didn't hear anything that was, you know, negative or bad relations or heavy handedness, none of that. 
Yesterday, after the wind and the rain on Monday, the RNC were on the hill collecting some of what they were saying were abandoned items, tents and otherwise. Okay. The reports were confusing all the way through, and apparently they were only there to take what had been abandoned. There is one story where a fellow returned to the encampment to find that his tent was gone, and why? Because he was in the hospital for a couple of days. So I don't know where the guidance came from or what have you. If you can identify what was taken off the hill belongs to you and can get to the RNC headquarters for Townsend, you can get your stuff back. But <laughs> I don't know exactly what went on there yesterday, but even if one person's tent was taken away simply because they were elsewhere, medical appointment, admitted to the hospital, or doing whatever they were doing. So, yes, I mean, we can't have stuff abandoned where it might end up on your windshield blown across the parkway. But, you know, four couples get a place in a uh, NLHC unit, great. But we're nowhere closer to satisfying the need out there. And yes, the five-point plan looks like it can be helpful. And they talk about the hundreds of millions of dollars and the hundreds of units that are going to be built. At some point, maybe we're going to be able to satisfy the need. And then big questions about the amount of money that we spend for private emergency shelter owners to house more people who are apparently can't be housed or helped anywhere else, whether it be violence and or substance abuse, what have you. There's got to be some standards there as well. There simply has to be. It can't be okay so this person was a problem, say, for instance, at the gathering place and ends up in a privately owned shelter, but then is putting the place up. There's nowhere else for them to go, but there's no standards in place, apparently, that are across the board and are enforced and wraparound services and all those things that we know people are in need of. In addition to that, well, how many people, pardon me, how many hotel rooms are being paid for by the provincial government today? It's one thing to have people who are newcomers to the uh, province and the country in a hotel room while we try to find housing, but how many hotel rooms are being paid for that there's nobody in? And why are we even doing that? Is it to ensure that we have a room if and when the need arises? And, you know, hotel extended stay is not an answer either for anybody who needs permanent housing. But there is a big question there. People tell me, and I'm trying to confirm, we're talking dozens, maybe 50 or 60 hotel rooms. Nobody's staying in them, but we're paying the bill. There's got to be a better way. When you add up the money going to emergency shelters, privately owned, the money being paid for hotel rooms versus some of the housing needs, because we've known this for a long time, these shelters are not new. If money had been afforded to building these units years ago, and this is not just a blame game issue, but the millions of dollars really to refocus and rechannel, refunnel those monies, probably put us well ahead of the game. So I'm trying to confirm that number of hotel rooms because that's really quite something. Anyway, you want to take on the five-point plan or any of that? You know what to do. Okay, moving in the industry. So carbon capture. Now we're talking about carbon capture, storage, and utilization, CCUS for short, trying to do something with the emissions from heavy industry, including oil and gas production. Carbon capture, I really don't know if it works as it's advertised, and there's lots of reports out there that say it's probably not as effective as people are trying to promote. It kind of does feel like it's one of these things being promoted by the fossil fuel industry, you know, so they can keep rolling with the good times. And there's massive reinvestment out in the oil sands, for instance. Lots of money going around for mergers and acquisitions. The investors are coming back on board for carbon capture. So there's some $6 million put forward to evaluate whether or not carbon can be captured, shipped, 
or transported to our offshore and pumped into some of the depleted oil fields. The, one of the academics at the uh, announcement yesterday said they're pretty confident it can work. And yes, there would be lots of opportunity to inject that carbon, but would it be safely stored and stored long term? I have no earthly idea. But it's different, certainly, when we look at some of the carbon capture processes that are being utilized onshore. But $3 million of that's going to be for the R&D, and you know, up to 50% of eligible project costs could be covered for a maximum of four projects. Have to use our, our institutions of higher learning as part of this. But you know, there was reference yesterday to a multi-billion dollar industry opportunity to store carbon offshore Newfoundland and Labrador. I'm going to try to invite some guests on who obviously know way more about it than I do. But I think we've got to be really careful to think that, you know, technology, as opposed to simply putting a tax on something, 100%. To utilize innovation and tech is going to be a big part of this emission control issue or matter or problem. But it's got to work. You know, we've got to find a way that we can't just say, oh, well, when we get the carbon emitted, we grab it, we store it, we transport it, we pump it into the depleted oil fields, and then Bob's your uncle. Well, I'll see if I can get some guests on who are much more learned in the field than I. There will be lots of those. And then we talk about another carbon sink opportunity. And it's more than that. It's the incubator for so many uh, species of marine life. There's a project ongoing now. It's going to take a few years. But they're looking at the worldwide depletion of eelgrass. Pretty important stuff. They're doing this work out in Gross Morn. So not only is it a potential for a carbon sink, a buffer against coastal erosion, protecting beaches and coastlines, it's also a place where, you know, there will be the incubator for crab, lobster, halibut. One of the biggest problems with the depletion of eelgrass, apparently, is the invasive species we know as the European green crab. I've never really understood if we can identify something as invasive, but we're unable to take them out of the water. If it's, doing, uh, if it's damaging the eelgrass, shouldn't every single individual, commercial harvester or otherwise, see a green crab, take it, dispose of it, before it depletes even further? Because the green crab just bites at the eelgrass at the stem, and we've seen a serious depletion in eelgrass. That's a pretty big problem, on top of the fact that it is also a carbon sink opportunity. So we're going to see if we can reach out to Rebecca Brushett from the Ecology Action Center in Halifax. They're calling eelgrass an underwater plant hero. That's pretty interesting stuff. And why do we not have the ability to simply deal with the green crab? Their numbers are growing exponentially. They're doing some serious damage. Every time anyone sees a green crab, it should be an opportunity to take that green crab out of the equation. What do you think? All of this amongst speculation whether there's anything to it or not of a provincial election. The last one was a mess, as we all know. So. Is it going to happen? I don't know. Opposition parties say, you know, it's putting politics in front of people. The premier yesterday, and this is the only answer he would offer, and it's the only one I would offer as well, is, you know, he wouldn't confirm or deny that an election will be called at some point before the end of the year. And whatever election day would be, I don't know. I'm not going to be surprised. You know, there's convention that says until the Tories had a permanent leader in place and the NDP had a permanent leader in place, there would not be an election call. But now those roles have been satisfied by my, uh, Mr. Wakem and Mr. Din. Don't be too surprised if there's an election call sooner than later. I don't have a crystal ball. I'm not involved in those conversations, obviously, but I got a funny feeling. What do you think? All right, last night kicked off the St. John's International Women's Film Festival, which is internationally renowned. Good for them, a feature film directed by Ruth Lawrence, starring her son. Oh, what's her son's name? It just jumped right out of my head. Did the debut, you know? 
Luke, Luke Lawrence, of course, I knew that. And of course, uh, today kicks off Music and L Week, which has always been a great celebration and just the importance of the arts and the contribution of different artists working in this province, creating some great material. We'll talk about some of the very special awards that are going to be handed out at the gala. You know, we won't know the winners of the individual categories, but I had it right in front of me here a second ago, but I'll have to find it. But I'll get to that before we run out of time this morning. All right, let's take a break. First, we're on the Twitter box. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openlineatvocm.com. My favorites when you pick up the phone and give us a call, just like Doug is in the queue. Mike also wants to talk about this lady, Chelsea Coombs. Issues getting cancer care. It's a devastating story. So we'll talk to Mike, Doug, and Alex is also there to talk about an upcoming event. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin on the top of the board, line number one. Good morning, Doug. You're on the air. Yes, good day, Paddy. How are you this morning? Best kind this morning. How about you? Good, good, sir. I agree with you 100% on the inflation and everything else, and gouging people and paying more for less. Uh, this is just a topic I wanted to throw out there. I don't know if there's any truth to it or anything can be done about it. But uh, I get hockey cards from my grandkids all the time. Yep. And this year, we're the only province that's charging $1.15. Every other province is only charging 99 cents. I was wondering if you came across it or you can find out the reason why. Well, we're talking about Tim Hortons, right? Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. hockey cards, yeah. So, apparently, well, it's very true, to be honest. Across the rest of the country, the it's around $1.99, and in this province, it's two ninety nine. So, as yeah. uh, you know, the news story said, it's basically two-tier system for hockey cards. Now, it's not an earth-shattering issue, but it's frustrating, right? You know, exactly, they can make sir, yeah. all the arguments about transportation costs, what have you, but some of that is absolutely nonsense. It doesn't justify a full dollar more here than anywhere else. And again, no, that's right. it might not break the bank for someone, it might not be as pressing as uh, grocery store price or what have you, but it's a nuisance. It just completely is a nuisance. Now, Tim Hortons themselves are not saying a whole lot about it, but it is absolutely true. Average price dollar ninety nine. Elsewhere, two ninety nine here. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. I just said I'll see if you heard anything on it or anybody can come on and speak about it. Why? What's the reason? Like uh, we're being gouged enough as it is here in St. John's in Newfoundland and Labrador. Sorry. The company, they were asked for a response to this story, and I think the summary was, well, it's not uncommon for prices to vary. No, it's not. But justification for that disparity between uh, two bucks and three bucks, they didn't have much to say on that, but that's a real thing, Doug. You're 100% right. Exactly, sir. Thank you once again, Patty. I love your show. I appreciate the call. Thanks, buddy. Thank you, sir. Bye. Bye, Bye, Doug. Yeah, again, it's just those little things that just get under your skin, right? Yeah, there's a common practice for prices to vary, but come on. And I guess, as Doug understands, and as we all get, it's not the be-all and end-all, the price of a pack of hockey cards, but when you add in every other little frustration, they pile up to the point where something like that can be an issue for some. You know, we, I get blistered all the time when we talk about issues that might not be the biggest ones under the sun, the Israeli-Hamas conflict, and get into little things like that. But again... Whatever is something you want to talk about, we're happy to talk about it on the show. Nothing too big, nothing too small. Let's go to line number two. Mike, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Patty, I sent you an email there earlier. I took very much we got a chance to read it on the issues that I got going on with the Supreme Court in Eastern Hill. Yeah, there's two big downloads that I just, uh, obviously it rang in at 914. I haven't had a chance to read it. Mm. But uh, when I listened to this little girl, <coughs> Uh, I don't know how to describe it. These people that are running Eastern Health, they got no conscience and they're inhumane to do a lot of it. What are we talking about specifically, Mike? 
the girl girl had got to go away for cancer treatments. You know, uh, here we are. They've got a team of lawyers hired to stop me from getting confidential and private information on contracts with Eastern Health that's taken millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars out of this province, and they don't have the funds to care for this girl. Like, what are they? Uh, I don't know what they are, <clears throat> you know, to describe them. Uh, right there now, everything that we got in our hospitals, every commodity, there's money leaving this province. You boil lunch into these hospitals, they're taking money and sending it out of the province. And a lot of it is going to Quebec. Quebec is one of the shareholders in this company, the Quebec government. Yeah, but that's not really an issue pertaining to the Chelsea Coombe story. Uh, uh, my understanding is, and this is not any justification, is that what she's involved in is a trial. You know, it's not even an approved medication or treatment at this moment in time. And add to it when we talk about cancer care, there was somewhere in the neighborhood of 50% of cancer patients weren't getting the radiation inside the 28-day threshold. That, and that, that apparently that's been reduced to some 30% because we had a lack of radiation therapists. So there's still four vacancies on that front. But if the window for starting radiation is 28 days and as many as 50% of patients weren't getting that, that's a huge problem. It's one of the disciplines that I've seen, I think we've seen other problems come in and poach from our healthcare system. So I wanted to put that in there because, you know, getting yes. the treatment is the big issue for uh, patients. I, I'm not disagreeing with you on that. What I'm disagreeing with is that they don't have the funds when they've got secret and confidential contracts that is raking our province, destroying our healthcare system, giving a company who is making 20 billion pounds a year and they're taking $2 from us for their uh, banking fees and this little girl's there that turns around they don't have the funding like they're putting the money into the wrong places they're giving our money away and it seems like nobody can do anything about it I'm here now fighting it into the Supreme Court uh, we got a hearing now in January and February and I'm all alone but I'm, I'm fighting a team of lawyers to see that the money is not wasted, that this little girl can have the money, the funds to try it, and everybody else that's suffering. Like, our money is being displaced and going out into the wrong places, and the people in this province don't know it. They don't know what's going on, and I'm trying to make it public, and now the government is spending millions of dollars to hire a law firm and everything to stop me from giving the people the information that we paid for, so rightly deserve, and 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 we're entitled to it, trying to stop me from getting this information out. And the politicians, Premier Fury and the other ones, Higgy and uh, and uh, Tom Osborne, they've had their chances to correct this, what's going on there. There should be no secret and confidential contracts between Eastern Hill and huge companies that could buy and sell Newfoundland. they got a lot more money than Newfoundland got. They got more employees the Newfoundland got politicians around the world. And I challenge anybody now on a computer that has got access to a computer, go in and look at Compass Group scandals and see what this executive of Eastern Health has brought into our province to run our government. A company who gives uh, tainted food to hospital patients and to uh, old age homes and 
orphanages and all the rest of it. There's, there's criminal activity going on all around the world with this company. And we got them here in Newfoundland running our eastern hill, growing like weeds that has taken over our eastern hill system. And what are we doing about it? Nothing. And then the government turns around and says, this little girl, we don't have the funding? I don't know. I've heard her family speak to the issue, and I don't know how the government has defended its decision on this front. I think they lean on the fact that it's a uh, an experimental trial. I remember all those years ago when there was uh, MS patients in this province looking for government funding to go elsewhere to get the Zamboni treatment. And it turns out that that probably wasn't the be-all and end-all and or worked at all for so many MS patients. So I suppose that's why government is hesitant to fund travel costs for experimental trials, but it was the last-ditch effort for this young lady, and now she went from something that was manageable, albeit I believe it was some sort of rare form of cancer, and now she has stage four. And this potential help in this experimental trial, which I don't know what the outcome will be, but it feels like it's really late in the day when you're at stage four, so it's a sad story all the way around. It is a sad story all the way around, but the thing that got me (coughs) was when the government came out and said they don't have the funding. That's the part that got me, that there's no funding, but they got hundreds of millions of dollars to give multi-billionaires uh, huge profits every year, raises at the cost of living when they don't have any cost. They're here into this province. They're not paying taxes. They're not paying snow sharing. They're not giving lawn care. They're not paying nothing for uh, toilet tissue. They're not paying anything for anything. And we're giving them the maximum benefits, maximum raises every year as fair profit to go outside of this province. It's sickening of, of what's going on there. And the people don't know it. And they won't, uh, I don't know if they won't take up the time or whatever to actually realize of what's going on with Dave Diamond and the executive of this healthcare system. It's criminal. It's, not, it's inhumane of what they're doing. They're taking our charity dollars even. Everything that's bought for Eastern Hill, there's a profit goes outside of this profit, a big profit. We've, and it's not staying okay, into this profit. Fair enough, Mike. Uh, as much as you've tried, we've also tried to get some more information about that company and the profits and where the money goes and the, uh, the wages being paid and all the control that they have inside the healthcare delivery system. It's proven to be very, very difficult, to, to be honest, as you found out the hard way yourself. Uh, I appreciate you putting it back on the radar this morning, Mike. Thanks for the call. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go and take a break. Uh, when we come back, Alex Taylor's in the queue. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Good morning, Alex Taylor. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, so I'd just like to have a mention about my fourth annual Merriam break coming up. Okay. Um, So it's going to be on November 25th, 2023 at St. Mary's Church Auditorium, Craig Miller Avenue. Um, The charity this year is going to Bridges to Hope. Uh, We have a bunch of local performers, and we are very, well, I'm very honored to uh, have the Navigators joining us as special guests. Um, It's at 7 p.m. The tickets are $10. Uh, You can buy them by calling 709 Seven uh, six nine one four zero two zero. Uh, there will be a fifty fifty uh, ticket draw at the concert, and yeah. 
good for you. You've put off a lot of these fundraising events and performances, which I think is very is uh, absolutely admirable. How did the relationship with the Navigators uh, happen, and how did they decide to come on board? Because that's a pretty big name. Yeah, uh, I met them a little time in summer, and yeah, we just I just asked them about it, and they were perfectly like, yeah, sure. Good for you. That'll be a nice draw, and for the uh, price of $10, that's a pretty nice night out. Thank you. So, of course, there's an endless list of charities and not-for-profits that would be searching for money and trying to fundraise actively, and it's been it's proven to be pretty difficult in the recent past. Uh, this sounds like a very fundamental question, but how did you land on Bridges to Hope? Well, I've always I've had them before, and they were really nice, so I, I just thought it would be really nice to go back and help them out some more. Well, good for you. Give the folks the details one more time before we say goodbye, Alex. All right, so the location is St. Mary's Church Auditorium, Craig Miller Avenue, at 7 p.m., November 25th, 2023. Uh, tickets are $10. You can call 709-691-4020. There will be a 50-ticket t- draw at the concert. And that's about it. Good for you. Hopefully it's a great night, and uh, good luck with it, Alex. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Yeah, have a good one. You too, buddy. All the best. All right, bye-bye. It's Alex bye. Taylor. He calls every now and then to uh, advertise the events he puts off. He's only a young man, and he's done yeoman service to raise money for a variety of groups over the years, and this is his fourth annual Marion Bright, just a month shy of Christmas and a 50-50 victory on top of a fun-nated music be exactly what you're going to ask Santa for. Uh, I did mention that I had, couldn't find my Music and L bit of info that I had around, but so Music and L, uh, the celebration week kicks off today, and the Lifetime Achievement Award this year is going to Buddy Wassey's name and the other fellers. So, of course, that's Wayne Chalk, Ray, Ray Johnson, and Kevin Blackmore. They've actually uh, been appointed to the Order of Canada as, as well. They've had, needless to say, a pretty successful 40 years as a band. 20 albums, 3 television specials. They've toured all over the the country and probably beyond so congratulations that well-deserved recognition some serious songs and of course lots of satirical and fun and they're terrific on stage if you've ever seen buddy Wassey's name and the other fellas you'll know what i'm talking about also one of the other special awards the dennis parker industry builder award is going to robert buck uh, and the unsung hero award is going to be awarded to marlene cal and amy house so buck has been a big deal in the industry for quite a long time he's been uh well, he's the band i think station road right and he's a real fixture on the music scene. When we talk about the two women who are receiving the Unsung Hero Award, 35 years, uh, Marilyn Cal has been the branch representative for Actor in Newfoundland and Labrador, been part of several artistic local groups, and Amy House, who has been at it for 40 years in the theater world. Uh, of course, wore many, many hats, director, producer, writer, comedian, performer, 14 of the years. She was uh, brought 40 original plays by Newfoundland and Labrador playwrights to the stage at the RCA Theater Company's LSPU Hall as the artistic animator so congratulations to those special award recipients for this week's music nl awards and picking up what mike was talking about with the chelsea coombe story got an email from a listener saying is this the same family uh as referenced years ago i didn't i didn't know so that's how i responded then he sent me a new story link this story has been going around since 2011 where Kathy Dunderdale was the premier. So the news clip that he sent me was posted on April the 7th of 2011. Chelsea Coombs at that point was 18 years of age. 
And here we are now in 2023, still talking about the inability for her family to get any help from the provincial government for treatment options for Chelsea. And she is indeed involved in an experimental uh, drug trial on the mainland at this moment in time. So the story goes on to say that she was, you know, shrieking questions during question period. The speaker at that time was Roger Fitzgerald. He put the House of Assembly into recess. So again, you know, the story's not brand new. This one's from 2011. The same family, the same woman, the same young lady. And here we are in 2023, still wondering aloud. When it comes to things like experimental drug trials, and the story's heartbreaking. Of course it is. How do you suggest, and at this moment, the CEO of the healthcare system, or of Eastern Health, pardon me, was Vicki Kaminsky. Remember Ms. Kaminsky's uh, term here. She was really vocal about this particular issue. And as a matter of fact, if I remember correctly, some comments she made with me on Backtalk at the time about the Coombs case led to her being kind of pushed out and her eventual uh, resignation. The issue was about hydrotherapy at the time and the available, whether or not it was available to her and whether or not it would be helpful to her. What do you think the government should do? How do you think the government should handle things like this? You know, tr I'll just try to back Ms. Uh, Coombs out of it as a specific. And I did mention the Zamboni treatment. Remember when that was a big story? And MS patients that were looking for some sort of help, some sort of treatment that could curb their symptoms worsening. And that was one of the issues that was being discussed around the world, was the Zamboni treatment. The provincial government at the time initially said there's no way they were going to pay for that type of experimental treatment until they knew whether or not it was going to be beneficial. Now there's plenty of examples of treatments and or procedures, surgeries that are not done here but are done elsewhere, and sometimes there has been opportunity for people to get some help. I remember one story from a fella who had uh, extraordinary weight loss and wanted to get rid of the excess skin. And then you know that there's some cardiac procedures that aren't available here, some less invasive that have been chosen, and notably we remember when Premier Danny Williams went to Florida, I believe, for a cardiac procedure that was not available here. So then there's some drugs that are not covered under the, prescription, the provincial prescription plan. So there's tons of examples of how some of what people people may be able to avail of in other parts of the country or other parts of the world that are simply not funded. Those few examples just pop into my mind because they're, they grabbed a lot of headlines at the time, but we all know how these things work. The churn of news and the so-called changing the channel from one crisis, one story, one conflict to another happens at breakneck pace. So sometimes it's really helpful for me, uh, for sure, if folks listening can, you know, pepper us with some stories that got a lot of traction in weeks or months or years past, have never been fully resolved, but are still absolutely worthy of discussion. You know, that's where the listeners have been extraordinarily helpful, is, you know, to pepper me with some of these things and their contributions certainly via social media and, and the open line email address is beneficial it'd be also great if they took the opportunity if they had the time to join us live on the program to share their perspective to whatever story it is and as we mentioned when we start with uh, the price of a pack of tim horns hockey cards we can take on that kind of stuff all the way to as i mentioned earlier in the show the horrific scenes we're seeing and the confusion or the misinformation or the inaccurate uh, issues that we're dealing with with israel and hamas so everything in between 
totally up for conversation. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the whopping big increases we're seeing in privately owned and operated personal care homes. They are not governed by the Residential Tenancies Act. Some of the stories we've heard are people having a note or memo slipped under their door that says in 30 days, your rent is going up $450 a month. Then the conversation goes to, can the people who are ineligible for some subsidy or some support from the government paying all of the rent out of pocket that really you know we talk about affordability a 450 dollar increase which i believe in that circumstance equaled about 14 percent i mean unmanageable to say the least for most who will see that memo and pick it up to much to their chagrin or horror when they return to their unit let's take that on right after the break or whatever you want to talk about don't go away welcome back to the show let's go to land number one say good morning to the independent member of the house uh, elected in serving the folks of mount pearl southlands that's paul lane paul you're on the air yes good morning patty and thank you for the uh, opportunity once again um there are so many things out there that, there's so many things out there that i could talk about but what i want to talk about today um, and, and relates to the numerous calls that I have received over the last couple of days, last two or three days, um, from seniors and family members of seniors who are living in uh, personal care homes um, and uh, their private pay because perhaps, like in, in most cases, you know, you would have someone who, uh, you know, instead of having getting just the OAS and CPP, which would and and if someone is getting just OAS and CPP as an example, uh, then they would be subsidised by the provincial government. But there are a lot of people uh, in uh, in these facilities. Uh, perhaps you know they work their whole life and they have a little bit of a pension. Like the person I spoke to this morning uh, about her mom. Well, you know her mom had worked for the provincial government and received you know a a. I'll say meager, uh, modest, maybe is a good word, a modest pension, uh, and as a result, it put her, you know, slightly over the threshold uh, to, uh, to 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 have a subsidized room. So she has to pay the entire bill uh, herself uh, monthly. The problem is in this particular case, and there's many seniors out there like that, is that they, as as I think you you indicated. They got a letter there the other day basically saying that at, uh, in, in 30 days or whatever the case might be, uh, their rent is going to go up um, by 400 and some odd dollars a month. And in the case of this particular lady, uh, that $400, uh, that extra $400 a month leaves her literally uh, with not one dime uh, left uh, of her, you know, between her OAS CPP and her small pension. It leaves her with nothing, and on top of that, she has health issues, and even though she has a drug card where she had worked with the provincial government, um, her drug cost is still something like, I think the lady said, $140, $150 a month, and she has zero money to pay for those drugs. So, like, you know, there are so many seniors out there like that. I mean, I understand if you have somebody who goes into a personal care home and they were, you know, wealthy, I'll say, you know. And and so whether it's $3,500 a month, 4000 5000 10000 it's no big deal. they got lots of money, you can afford it. But there's a lot of people who, uh, based on the threshold for subsidy, uh, because they worked and they have a small pension or something like that, a few RSPs, whatever the case might be, they don't qualify for any subsidy, 
and now they're going to be left. Uh, well, we don't know what's going to happen to them because there's going to be people here who simply cannot afford that increase at all. When I say, I don't mean in terms of comfort. I don't mean of extras. I mean literally cannot afford just to pay the rent. Yeah. Or they can just pay the rent and they can't pay for things like drugs. So, I mean, there has to be some intervention here. This just this can't stand as it is. I don't know what the solve or solution is here, but look, if there's going to be inevitable rent increases across the board, whether it be in privately owned personal care homes or otherwise, because even if you just look at the base fundamentals of cost of insurance or the interest rate and the mortgage rates, if you're on a variable, then your costs have gone up. And I totally get it. Apparently, there hasn't been much in the way of rent increases across the personal care board since around 2017. So rent increases are inevitable. But this sort of sticker shock is... You know, even Sean Lane, who uh, is part of the uh, Umbrella organization, they don't represent this particular home in Paradise. For $450 with 30 days' notice, he's made the uh, reference to it being unprofessional. Now, I don't think we're going to be able to get that care home to come on and talk about the justification, but a few things come to mind. So these homes are not governed or legislated by the Residential Tenancies Act. They fall under the Home Care Operational Standards, which does not address rent increases, period. Maybe it's an amendment brought to that uh, particular piece of legislation, because even if we just said, okay, now everyone's covered by the Residential Tenancies Act, there's still the ability to jack up the rate, you know, because you'll get a six-month notice versus a 30-day notice. So it doesn't change the water and the beans a whole, whole lot, but a bit more time afforded to people to make a decision on their affordability, whether or not they have to try to find a new place, which is extremely difficult as well. So where the solution is here, I don't know. But I think it extends beyond care homes because, again, this is not promoting or uh, saying this is the right way forward, but there's going to be an inevitable conversation about rent control and vacancy control. Because that is some protection. Now, it's good for people who are currently renters, uh, but maybe, just maybe, not for those who are down the road if we don't include vacancy control. So I think between those two or three mechanisms, we can probably make it a little bit better and certainly more manageable when we talk about time frames if we just make those nuanced amendments. No, uh, listen, I agree that that is one thing that, that could and, uh, and should be done. But, like, like, to put this, you know, again, I just want to nail home this, this fact, right? If you are... A senior, for argument's sake, right? It's not. It's not a case of giving you more time because at the end, like at the end of the day, whether I stay at uh, personal care home A, B, C, D, or E, right? Um, and I know there are some places that are like high-end elite places, but I'm talking about the basic places that people would stay at. They're all basically the same. You know, they're the same rate. So it's not a case of, okay, I'm going to leave this personal care home to that. Now, I mean, that would be absolutely shocking on the senior because you're familiar with your surroundings, the staff, the other people, whatever. So that would be devastating. But even if you could do that, it's not like I can say, okay, well, I'll move out of nursing home A and go to nursing home B because it's still going to cost me that, you know, basically that same money in, in A and B. So if I, can't, if I can't afford the increase in A, I'm not going to be able to afford it in the, the increase in B. So the idea of finding time to move somewhere else, that's really not an option. So No, I'm just adding in, yeah. you know, no, some of the moving that. parts. No, I, no I, I understand that, Patty. I'm just trying to I, – I just want to make sure that everybody who might be listening is understanding that point that, you know, if you're a senior, you're a doctor. So now the case is I, there's people who will literally not be able to afford the rent. So are we going to kick them to the street? What are we going to do? So, uh, I mean, I, I think there has to be an intervention. Yes, there's some legislative things, but – 
perhaps we have to look at the subsidy. I mean, if if somebody, I, I understand there's thresholds and it's there for a reason, but if you're somebody who uh, who gets the subsidy, then basically your seventeen, eighteen hundred dollars a month, whatever it is, goes to the nursing home, your OAS, your CPP, and the government supplements that with like another fifteen hundred, we'll say, uh, to so that's that's your thirty five hundred dollars a month, whatever the case might be. So at the very least, if someone uh, doesn't qualify for the subsidy, and they're able, and they're only able to pay thirty one or thirty two hundred or whatever they're able to pay. Well then, surely the government is going to have to pick up the other three hundred. You know what I mean? They're going to have to do something. We can't we can't kick seniors out on the street. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. So uh, you know, I I really think the minister has to look at this and and intervene. I'll certainly be calling on him to do so. Uh, I'm very surprised I haven't heard anything from our seniors rep. I have placed a call with her with her office. I want to speak to the seniors representative on this as well because I really believe they have a advocacy role in advocating for seniors. I mean, if there was ever an issue that required uh, advocacy by the seniors' uh, representative, it's this one in my mind. So I hope to hear, we're going to hear from Ms. Walsh pretty soon on this as well. Yeah, fair enough, because, you know, curiously, the Office of the Seniors Advocate isn't set up to deal with very specific personal issues, but this is an across-the-board concern where there's going to have to be some attention given to it in the House of Assembly. And again, I'll admit, I don't know if there's a one-size-fits-all amendment that could be afforded to the home care operational standards, but obviously there's going to be a lot of concern because this is not going to stop. You know, thankfully, I think with yesterday's inflation numbers, we're going to see the Bank of Canada next week not hike the rates beyond the 5% it currently stands at. So, But that doesn't mean that all the people are up to remortgage or renegotiate their mortgage, even if you're on a fixed mortgage at this moment in time. Going back in, there's going to be costs. And if you're a landlord, of course, you're in it for equity. You're in yep. it for profit. So yep. that's going to be passed along, and that's unavoidable. And I do think that there's going to be – look, rent control and vacancy control can be helpful for some circumstances. But at the exact same time, we've got to have a careful look at other jurisdictions where those things have been put in place, what it meant for the appetite of private developers to build especially to build affordable, to build apartments versus condos. Because if you think we're fixing it on one side, but we're breaking it on the other, then it's probably not a very good idea. I think there's some examples and case studies in different provinces in the country. We don't have to look around the world, Mm -hmm. but look in this country, what those two controls look like and what it means for private developers and their want to get in. Because 5% in GST is probably not going to be the be-all and end-all when we look at uh, profitability, building apartments versus condos or single-family dwellings. But anyway, I'm happy to have that chat. No, 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 you're right, Patty, and and like I say, like when we talk about that particular issue, which is somewhat diverted from what we were, and that's fine, but uh, like, you know, to to my mind, uh, it's fine to create incentives, you know, to build more condos, more rent units, more housing, whatever, but uh, the key word that, that, that we have to keep in mind that kind of gets missed in a lot of these private developments is the word affordable, and uh, and, and that's the challenge. The affordability piece. Yeah, not, I don't not, think not just building them. I don't think the rent control issue strays too far from what we're talking about because that would be across the board for rent, regardless of it's in my basement apartment or at a privately owned. Yes, yeah. Oh, yes, yes. If you talk about that kind of legislation, yes, yes, anyway. I agree with you there. I, I, I thought we were. I thought you were referring to you know the incentives for. Uh, for developers to build more units and so on. Like, if, if, you're, if all we're doing is we're going to put 
more units in place, yes, that might that'll be helpful. Hopefully, in terms of someone who's you know going to buy a house, get a mortgage or whatever. But in terms of people that are looking for uh, affordable rentals and 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 you know affordable condos, whatever the case might be, uh, then it's going to take a lot more than just building them. Uh, you know, if it's done privately, there's going to be a profit margin that's going to be factored in there. So yeah. affordability is always going to be a challenge, right? Appreciate the time, Paul. Thank you. Thank you very much, Patty. And again, uh, please, Mrs. Walsh, come out and uh, we want to hear what you have to say about what's going on. Uh, with these seniors and Minister Osborne, you're really going to have to take a hard look at this, and we're going to we're, we're going to have to step in. There's no way we can let seniors uh, be kicked out on the street in 30 days or any time for that matter. Thanks, Paul. Thank, thank you. Take care. Bye bye. bye. Paul Lane, independent member, Mount Pearl Southlands. And as a listener points out uh, via a private message, you know, rent is a bit of a catch-all term that we're using there. Because, of course, if you're in a personal care home, the rent will cover a variety of different things like meals and snacks, maybe some recreational programs or what have you. But I guess when we talk about rent, for instance, in my basement apartment, it could include Wi-Fi and utilities, what have you. So, yes, rent is not simply about this amount of money for the roof over the head and the key to the door. It comes with different... Uh, different pieces of chattel in it in personal care homes, of course, different than renting my basement. But yes, rent is the catch all there. That's a fair point made by Glenn. Uh, today's a good day to get on the show if you're in, in around town at 709 273 5211. Elsewhere, it's toll free long distance 1 888 590 VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Someone picked up uh, one of the comments I made or some of the comments I made off the top about the oil industry and investors coming back to the fossil fuel business and some of the big companies that are absolutely flush with cash had the opportunity to pay down a lot of debt, freeing up cash for some of the mergers and acquisitions we're seeing, and that includes in the oil sands in Alberta. You know, one of the major players in our offshore, of course, ExxonMobil, and they, of course, seem to be quite bullish on the shale play in the United States. They had an acquisition of about $60 billion of the Pioneer Group that closed just last week. So pretty mega deal, and they are flush. So the listener said via email that, does that reinvigorate a conversation about the windfall tax. I find that to be a really tricky conversation, to be honest with you, because just like we wonder who would be the arbiter of what the truth is, who gets to decide what an acceptable level of profit is in one industry or another before it triggers a so-called windfall tax? Look, a lot of people promote it because, yes, the corporations are absolutely living high on the hog, especially in the oil business. Record production, record revenue, record profit in this country last year. And obviously what we're seeing with the M&As in the oil sands is they are sitting on a ton of cash, an absolute ton. As it pertains to the provincial budget, you know, while the government talks about curbing emissions and maybe carbon storage offshore, and I don't know if that's fit to eat, but we're going to try to have on some of the academics that were at the announcement yesterday to help us walk through how that would work and look and the capture of it, the storage of it, and the transportation of it, pipeline or via ship or what have you, because that one's way over my head. But in the oil business here, and we talk about all the measures that have been supported by the provincial liberals and of course, by the federal liberals, it is the absolute double-edged sword, isn't it? Because we do rely on oil revenues, and there's no one industry can replace them in full. I don't think there is anyway. So about a billion dollars last year. 
So in the most recent provincial budget, they use these numbers in the forecast, and sometimes they get it right and sometimes they get it wrong, which leads to either a surplus or a real deficit, simply based on the forecasted amount of money coming in via the oil business. In this last provincial budget, they were forecasting the average price over a fiscal year from March 31st to March 31st at $86 American a barrel of Brent crude. At this, and that was based on a 76.75 cents for the Canadian dollar versus the American greenback. Today, oil has crept over 90 bucks. It's trading this morning at 91.27, so well over. Now I know the 86 is an annualized average, so 91, and the Canadian dollar is holding at 73 cents. So there is absolutely, if the trend continues as forecasted by people in the industry, whether it be Bloomberg or wherever you go to and whoever you trust uh, on those numbers, who's proven to be reliable on these forecasted numbers, there's going to be some additional monies coming in the door. That's the good news. It's probably given government the so-called needed wiggle room to make the kinds of announcements they've been making. And, you know, that is also bleeding into people's psyche that with all the announcements, incentives and subsidies and investigations for things like whatever the carbon storage economy or industry will look like in the future, that does lead people to believe that it feels a lot like the quote-unquote a new fire truck announcement, which is generally one of those things we see just prior to elections being called. And then, of course, the announcements and the re-announcements. Sometimes it's hard to keep up with whether or not something's a new announcement or a re-announce uh, project. And I guess some of that fell into the five-point plan in housing, you know, with the reduction of GST, HST for private developers to get in on building affordable units. So there's the double-edged sword on the oil business because the government does absolutely have a long-running reliance on the price of a barrel of Brent crude. So And yes, the how the uh, Canadian dollar compares to the American dollar because, once again, it was 86 bucks and 76.75 cents uh, U.S., or pardon me, Canadian dollar against the Americans, and right now 91.27 a barrel at 73 cents. So that's a huge upside. If I remember correctly, every single difference in dollar adds up to about $27 million, if I remember that number correctly off the top of my head. So there you go. Also, with the other burgeoning industry here, uh, in addition to whatever the potential for carbon storage looks like, is the whole long play on hydrogen. So, look, it absolutely is growing in popularity and for utilization. We have seen at the exact same time some companies that have walked away from the green hydrogen play say that they can get other alternative sources cheaper than hydrogen. And there was issues with the number of buses that were going to be hydrogen fueled in Denmark. They walked away. Another big play where they walked away. So, again, it's the private company's business model that will work or not. But remember... All of these plays come with some federal tax dollars, dollar subsidies. So we are involved. No provincial money on the proverbial barrel head, but we are involved. And the impact here, yes, there's going to be jobs and rev expanded tax base and water royalties and crown land lease monies coming in the door. But with the specifically the environmental impact, what does their business model look like given some of the issues that we are dealing with on land, onshore? There's a story this morning in the Financial Post that speaks to the green hydrogen business model. And there's a fellow named Barry Norris, founder and chief investment officer of the hedge fund called Argonaut Capital Partners, LLP. I don't know if he's right or wrong, but these guys are in it for one reason and one reason only, and that's to make as much money as humanly possible. That's all they do, right? So he says it looks like it's been a complete waste of time. He's skeptical that the business models of a lot of these companies will work. And these are people that have built in a few shorts in hydrogen, 
that looking at bet the share prices will fall. They're talking about the specifics of green hydrogen. We know that there's going to be an energy loss while it's transported over to Germany or wherever the eventual market for it is. It is the most expensive form of hydrogen. So, yes, if John Risley and or the folks at Exploits or, or Abo Everwind and or Pattern Energy, if they think it can work for them, because it's going to be a lot of money borrowed and a lot of money needed to be paid back, but those are the questions that we don't really know the answers to because it's in its infancy. You know, will it work? I guess if the province gives it a green light, then they're certainly hoping it works because it will come with a significant impact on shore that people have been asking questions about and talking about. So you can't have one without the other. Business, business success has got to be achieved if we are going to green light the impact that we all understand it will be for the land, the water usage, and whatever the impact might be, you know, for instance, out in the Port of Stephenville. Add to it, you know, we don't even know about their energy requirements, how they'll be satisfied. Because it doesn't really sound like it makes much sense to have a, as uh, recommended by Hatch, uh, their engineering group, when Newfoundland Labrador Hydro went to Hatch for some of these updated recommendations, they looked at some potential 20 options. Hatch landed on a 150 megawatt diesel generated unit uh, to be placed at Holyrood. And so let's just say World Energy GH2, which is only one of five projects, potential projects out there. If there's going to be a, a course of time that they need 150 megawatts, then dirty energy to fuel the creation of greener energy for export use. We don't even know where hydro has landed here yet. And we're anticipating by Halloween, we'll know whether or not any or all of these projects are moving forward to the next phase. So there's a lot yet to be understood there. It doesn't make you a full-on skeptic or a critic. It doesn't mean that there's not a possibility for taking advantage of a growing industry. But to not ask the questions is going to be a real massive concern. Let's take a break. When we come back, there's a caller there who wants to talk about the rent increase issue we just talked about with Paul Lane. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay, thank you. How about you? Good, good. good. Thank you for taking my call. No problem. I just listened to uh, Paul Lane there, and, uh, you know, I'm not in his district, but I uh, always enjoy what Paul has to say, and he's a very level-headed and a fair person. Um, and it's tragic that these uh, rate, rate increases has come to seniors, and in particular people who worked all their lives. At the end of the day, if you get sick, you, you can't help that. But to be faced with that uh, while you're in a home struggling with an illness, it's, it's horrible. But on that note, Patty, uh, Paul did say, that it's not right and it's almost uh, unmoral for this to happen. But, you know, it happened to me and many of my friends just not that long ago uh, with the rate increase on our mortgages. I was locked in at 2.99%. Uh, renewal comes up, is up to 6 and 7%. Yep. I know people whose, whose monthly uh, mortgages has increased to five and $600 and still rising. You know, it's a moderate. It's a moderate home. It's not a, It's not a million dollar home or anything like that. Uh, and then you're working. You have a truck payment. You have uh, medications. So, what's going on in today's uh, financial scene? And the stress that is playing on everyone, everyone from their 20s to their 70s. It's ridiculous. And I don't know where it's going to end. And I and I have to blame the federal government. This. This inflationary spending, and I'm not an expert, don't get me wrong, 
But I know there's more money going out from the federal government every time you turn around, and someone's going to have to pay that bill. And the banks are reaping the profits. The food chains are reaping the profits. And myself and my spouse, we work. We work good jobs, but the struggle is real, and it is getting to a point where what do you do and who do you go to? Fair, excellent questions. The issue regarding your mortgage and my mortgage, you know, folks were on the variable rates. They really got walloped immediately. When we all go to renegotiate, we'll get it. You know, we, we throw around 5%. That's the Bank of Canada's uh, interest rate. But that's their benchmark interest rate. No one gets 5%. It not only impacts your mortgage. Let's just say you have a line of credit playing a percent over prime. It impacts the amount of money you're going to have to service your line of credit with. So it has with wide-reaching impact. And I'm not an inflation and or interest rate expert either. You know, but I think if you, we look around the modernized, developed first world, inflation is a problem almost everywhere. So, and of course, that does indeed come with a variety of inputs and absolutely comes with the amount of money being circulated and the demand that's in play versus the supply that's in play. So I think there's a lot more to it than simply pandemic supports. And this, this is a question that I don't have an answer to, but I think it's a worthwhile discussion to have. Is the amount of money that the federal government took on insofar as sovereign debt goes. And, you know, we can talk about our net debt to GDP comparison, which is what many economists use to, you know, gauge your economic strength and or weakness. But just imagine the other side of it. If the amount of support, which is probably too much and not enough regulation or monitoring in place, whether it be for the CERB or the loans for businesses or whatever, you know, even Bill Morneau, former finance minister, said it was probably too much for too long. But just imagine it had to be the other way. Economic recovery with, say, for instance, not getting the amount of government support, uh, the bankruptcies and insolvencies and businesses that went away, economic recovery in that situation would be way worse, way more difficult, way more impact on the economic strength and the economic health of individuals, businesses, and the country at large. So I think we don't, ha we haven't had that discussion because we just allowed the political rhetoric to drive the day, right? We're all in this together, and here's your money, versus the overspending and the uh, printing of money has caused all the inflationary pressures, when the answer is probably somewhere in between those. Good points, Patty, and, and I agree. But the reality is uh, many working Newfoundlanders, Labradors, and Canadians who work six, five, six, seven days a week, extra hours, extra jobs just to make ends meet, and there's no end in sight. You know, it's it's getting to a point where what, what do you do? Do you just declare bankruptcy? And I've listened to these online shows where, you know, solvencies and, and in new flans on the rise. But, in fact, it's reality. So what we're going to have is people who are – and uh, there's no more middle-income people. or That's gone. That's the day to pass. Uh, you're going to have people like myself who work and my spouse who works uh, – looking for uh, low-income housing because at the end of the day, someone's going to walk away from something and it's not going to be the bank. They're not going to say, hey, caller or, you know, uh, for, it's forgiven. They're, they're going to take your property. Yeah, I mean, even during the heights of the pandemic and the big banks saying, you know, some forgiveness available to your mortgage payments, you know, that you can negotiate with the bank. But, of course, that in some corners felt like the bank's doing you a favor when in fact that wasn't anybody's favor because compound interest is their best friend so extending the uh, amortization period for my mortgage with a little bit of forgiveness blended in that's only good for the bank <laughs> it wasn't ultimately good for me 
Absolutely. So. Uh, Patty, if you have time, may I broach on another point? That sure, go ahead. seems to bother me lately. Go ahead. Uh, with these NAEP ads, uh, you know, I understand, and everybody's preaching what uh, individuals do for NAEP and for the public service, in particular health care. That's where it seems to be uh, directed. But we, you know, people in the province listen to it, and I just understand that they signed off on a contract this spring past for a meager 8% with health care professionals for the most part, or health services, 8% over four years, which is nothing. So there's no negotiations in process, in progress. There's What is the purpose of these ads when they just signed off on a contract that I understand most of their members didn't even feel acceptable? Uh I don't understand that point of it. We understand the nurses are getting like 17, 18% uh, air services. Uh, they didn't accept it. Uh, corrections didn't accept it. And, I, and from what I'm hearing, just unconfirmed, these deals are going to get a much better uh, deal than the health services and these people who just recently signed off. And now there's a big campaign at a cost of, I'm assuming, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, for what purpose? Well, this is not the first time that any union has done exactly that to try to paint the picture of here's our membership, here's what they mean to you and the services you rely on. So I, I get what they're trying to do or what they're trying to attempt or achieve. But if I remember correctly, you know, because the one group now, Allied Health Professionals, which cover a bunch of different disciplines, they did not accept they've reached an impasse. There's going to be a conciliator brought in. But I'm pretty sure that QP, NAEP, and the Registered Nurses Union all signed the same deal, or eerily similar, 2, 2, 2, and 2, and signing bonuses. So I don't think anyone has got, gotten beyond 8% over four years. The doctors renegotiated. They're a totally different kindle of fish because it also came with a difference in the way they get paid, a blended capitation fee for service, which is still a little bit out of my full grasp or understanding. So, yeah, I mean, they did accept the deal. All three groups had it ratified by the majority of their members. So I guess they thought it was all they were going to get because government is also strapped. So that's the whole thought about, you know, that catch-all. We're all in it together, right? You know, That's not, that's not uh, sorry, Patty, that's not totally correct when it comes to the nurses getting two, two, and two. Uh, they, they, you know, there's many uh, conditions behind that deal that probably the public is not aware of. Uh, step progression, you know, time and a half from your first shift when you start a correction. That's right. There's, there's a lot going on there. That's right. So just to say everyone got two, two, and two, that's not probably, and we probably don't have time to clarify and go to each, uh, you know, collective agreement, but for the most part, that's that's not how it is. That was just base pay. You're 100% right. There was all sorts of stepped issues and how, how and when overtime kicked in. You're 100% right. Patty, I really appreciate chatting with you, and I listen to your show as much as I can, and uh, I enjoy uh, all the dialogue between all your callers and, and yourself. Thank I appreciate you. you making time. Thanks for the call. Bye now. Okay, take good care. Bye-bye. Yeah, we don't know where that allied health professional conversation is going to go. They were negotiating for a year and came up against an impasse. Uh, maybe Mr. Fiercy, who I believe is the president of that group, he'd like to come on and give us a status update as to where we are because they do represent a variety of disciplines in the healthcare system. I think as many as 20 different roles that are represented by Allied Health. So we'll see if we get an update from them. Don't want to short shrift Brian or John, who are also in the queue. 
to talk about uh, issues important to them. One's about photo IDs for travel. The other one, uh, John wants to talk about inflation, and he also wants to make some reference to what's going on over in Israel and Hamas. Very quickly before we get to that break, I know we're all so stressed, and the issues are in some times horrific. It's how we get information these days and how it gets disseminated. Because just think about it, even overnight, a rocket strike in Gaza that struck a hospital, and the initial report was 500 people killed. And then there was a back and forth about whether or not it was Israel fired the rocket or it was a misfire by Hamas that unfortunately and inadvertently hit the hospital. The Israelis denied, Hamas denies it. Then you get reports by reporters on the ground that are saying what they think has happened, and they have extremely conflicting reports. It's become really quite something to try to follow along these major conflicts. Add to it, it does not question where you think the truth lies necessarily, but to recognize the humanity or the lack thereof on either side of this conflict is undeniable. It's absolutely undeniable. You know, there's been members of parliament trying to take the CBC to task, for instance, about some of the internal memos about how they're supposed to reference Hamas as militants or terrorists. Now, the government of Canada has quite clearly said that Hamas are terrorists and that Hamas is not every Palestinian. So there's just so much to it. But how to get down to the brass tacks of what's real or what's not, what's true or what's a lie, has proven to be extremely difficult on these fronts. But anyway, and as we say, the lie makes its way around the world and is accepted as gospel truth by so many before the truth gets out of bed and a foot on the floor. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. John, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Uh, yeah, a couple things that uh, interested me in your show uh, today. First, the inflation rate. You know, going from four point something down to three point eight. Um, you know, we're it's 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 we're in the fall. I mean, we've just come out of the summer, and uh, you know, the, we're we're eating the crops that are that are just being uh, taken out of the fields and all that kind of stuff. What's going to happen to that inflation rate uh, now that we're going into the winter? You know, the cost of groceries is going to go up. Cost of fuel is going to go up. You know, we're people most a lot of people don't have the heat on yet. What happens when that heat comes on? So, you know, the government is quick to uh, take credit for the decreasing uh, inflation rate, even, albeit it's just like, you know, two months they're talking about here. Just one second, though, John. What's the implication of winter uh, and inflation, sorry? So so as we go into, into the winter, uh-huh. um, you know, we're going to be paying more for groceries. I mean, you know, as, as these, you know, our summer foodstuffs, right, all the fresh produce and everything that some of it, uh, some of it being locally grown right now in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, what's going to happen come December when, you know, the, the food prices, particularly uh, fresh produce, starts skyrocketing again as it hits the grocery stores? Additionally, when the demand, when, when the demand increases for, for heating fuel, for instance, uh, throughout the winter, that also drives up the inflation rate. And, you know, the, the, the federal government was quick to, to say that, Hey, look, you know, uh, it's it's going down, but, you know, we're not factoring in fuel and food. Well, that's two of the major 
uh, 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 things that we need to live. So are they going to take credit for it when it starts going back up again uh, come January, February, March? Yeah, that to me, maybe I'm wrong. That to me is simply a price point pressure, seasonal pressure, because you're right, there'll be more importation from, say, South America, what have you, in the warmer climates where they continue to grow year round. So I don't know if that has any direct impact on inflationary pressures, but it absolutely will have an impact on the amount of money I pay for one product or another, which can't be controlled, yeah. say, for instance, by the Bank of Canada. You know, so that's where the inflationary levers, the only place to pull them, necessarily speaking, when we talk about the ultimate control, which takes about 12 or 18 months of lapsed time between an announcement on a rate hike versus when it actually has an impact. So the Bank of Canada can't do anything about those grocery store prices, but I guess they're attempting to do something about the inflation number. And like I said off the top, it kind of feels silly to even try to give some sort of probative update about from 4% to 3.8%. Am I going to feel that any more uh, today? Versus in August? Probably not. Does that increase my purchasing power? Probably not. Uh, exactly. Um, likewise, the, the, the provincial government, you know, uh, this and, and I first heard this uh, probably a month ago, that they were looking at all options for this, uh, this gener- power generation plant, uh, the alternatives. And uh, what surprised me is that in this political and eco-friendly climate, that they actually mentioned it. <laughs> as a as an option go ahead and investigate it by all means but to actually come out and say like we're investing all options including the diesel diesel generator uh for 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 electricity that kind of boggles my mind yeah i think that grabbed the headline quite simply didn't it because we're talking about decommissioning holy road and having more uh renewable resources drive the electric grid and then all of a sudden diesel and then Obviously, every news outlet jumped right on and said, what, what are we doing? You know, <laughs> diesel in Labrador, diesel at Holy Road. And then, of course, when Jennifer Williams, the CEO at Hydro, comes on and says, it's just one of the uh, alternatives being evaluated. They haven't settled on anything. But we also know that the engineering consulting company they brought in, Hatch, that's the recommendation. 150 megawatt diesel, diesel gen at Holy Road. It's ridiculous. It sounds a little bit um, ridiculous. Uh, on a final note, and I won't take up too much time on this, uh, the the war in um, in the Middle East. Um, it's it's interesting that uh, you know I was I spent a lot of time in the military, and uh, I, it specifically I spent a lot of time in the targeting community, and I know the amount of time and effort that first world countries put into targeting. Now, some countries may not care about targeting. I mean, you look at the war in Russia. You know, there's some nasty stuff going on there and civilian populations yeah. and infrastructure being targeted. Um, but most first world countries, uh, especially Western countries, put a lot of time and effort into targeting uh, to make sure they get it correct, to make sure they don't hit civilian infrastructure, especially hospitals, schools and religious institutions. And I know that targets are vetted over and over they're checked three four five times and it's it's a lengthy process so anybody who thinks that a first world country especially one that's under scrutiny like israel would just inadvertently target a hospital they have to shake their head um it's and it's you know our pm at the first thing that ha- you know as soon as this happened prime minister said this is shocking and abhorrent that you know that they're targeting targeting hospitals well he came out and said that without knowing 
any circumstances, you know, about about this um, about this explosion. And and just to go back to the the BBC, I always uh, I always assumed I always thought of the BBC as a very impartial uh, news organization. And watching this watching this BBC and CNN over the last couple of days. It, it's kind of sickening my stomach because they did the same thing on BBC. Uh, they refused to acknowledge Hamas as a terrorist organization. And and every time a, an explosion goes off, they immediately attribute it, attribute it to Israel and airstrikes and miss, missile strikes. And it just, it just blows my mind how people jump the gun without having all the facts. It's becoming all, all too common as well. I don't know what happened last night. I just do not. But... You know, even some of the Israeli Defense Force uh, spokespeople have talked about it's all about the destruction. So, yes, I'm sure there's lots of vetting and due diligence associated with specific and precise targeting. But I guess the question might be as to how much attention is being given to that, given the furious response of the Israelis. And look, I'm not afraid to say it, and I've taken some serious knocks here in the recent past on this stuff, but, you know, it's not a, you know, the country supports Israel. Okay, absolutely. But we also know that there is written and well understood and documented international law about something called collective punishment. So, yes, Hamas may indeed be shielding themselves with civilians, women and children, which we know has been a long-running practice of terrorist organizations. And so, yes, they will willfully put their own people in harm's way, but... You know, not to be able to recognize the humanity on either side is really a shortcoming of so many people, so many pundits, so many media outlets, because the stories are horrific. I mean, they're unbelievable. Since then, we have thousands of people dead. And the ability to know exactly what you're reading, whether or not it's true, half accurate, or completely inaccurate, has become very difficult here. So I try to be very calm and cautious and wait to find out more before uttering anything on these fronts. Because once you say it, unless you're willing to offer clarifications and corrections in the, uh, in the aftermath, sometimes that doesn't matter. Because you've already stuck your foot in it, right? And especially for, you know, governments to be so quick to accept anything as absolutely the 100% accurate information without just letting things play out a little bit is just in an effort to get sound bites on TV as much as anything else. And that's a dangerous way to think about these conflicts. No, absolutely. I mean, we talk, I, was on your, I was on your show once before and we talked about, uh, we talked about the intelligence community and sharing, sharing intelligence uh, in, at that time. Oh, yeah, okay. Specific reference. Yeah, so it was the specific reference to, to the, uh, the murder out west in D.C. and the PM immediately um, attributing that to India and about the sharing of information. I mean, I am sure, and I, at least I hope, that Israel, if they are innocent, and I, you know, I haven't seen the evidence myself, but if they are innocent of this crime, that I do hope that they share that intelligence information, show the video footage. I mean, they, I'm sure they have drone footage, they have electronic uh, footage from, the, from, the, uh, from their system, their um, Iron Dome system, and I hope they show that and clarify that. And, uh, and I agree with your point, by the way, that, that, you know, we need to bear in mind the humanity on both sides. Um, and unfortunately, until the ground war, or the ground offensive begins, um, there may be more collateral damage. And just to point out that once Hamas, uh, if Hamas decides to, to take over or use a school or a hospital or something as an operating base... Technically, that is no longer a school or, 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 or a hospital. 
um, you know, it's just that now they're using human shields, and that, yeah. and that's deplorable, absolutely deplorable. But we won't see an end to that until the ground offensive begins, and you can do more surgical strategic targeting. And not every Palestinian is Hamas. Not every Israeli is IDF, right? I mean, we've just got to be not only careful here, but we also have to be contemplative. Because to pretend that every one of the 2.2 million Palestinians is all in, in the unfettered destruction of the Jewish state is probably 100% inaccurate. I mean, the people say, well, they vote for Hamas. But, I mean, elections in Gaza are not like elections in Canada. I mean, there's been plenty of stories about the election. Like, I think it's about 17 years ago since there was an election anyway in Gaza. We're not talking about people playing fair. We're talking about people who are willing to kill their opponents. Forget to badmouth them. They're willing to kill them. So just to tell me that, you know, uh, pa Palestinians are all Hamas because they voted for them, it's kind of probably missing a big part of the story because, like I said, they're willing to shoot opponents in the head versus, uh, you know, take to the hustings and, uh, and espouse their policies. That's not how elections work in Gaza. No, <laughs> for sure. Right? Anyway, it's all, it's all very traumatic uh, some days. John, I appreciate the time. Thanks a lot for this. Thanks, Patty. You're bye -bye. welcome. Bye-bye. <laughs> Fair enough. And again, I will awful, uh, offer the qualifier. I don't pretend to be any sort of geopolitical expert of any note. Any note, period. And of course, many people are now experts in many different fields, including international conflict, including international diplomacy. And Brian mentioned, you know, the Prime Minister going to the media to say that the intelligence shows that the Indian government, through Indian agents on the ground, were responsible for this, the assassination of that Sikh leader in British Columbia. They also went on to say that they had briefed their allies, including other members of the Five Eyes, uh, before they made this allegation, and also told India, the Indian government, what they had found through intelligence gathering. We don't even know if this was all CSIS-gathered information and or whether or not Americans, the UK, the Aussies, what, ha what have you. So there's always going to be a lot left unknown. We all want information. I want as much as I can possibly get. But even, even if we look at things like uh, foreign interference into our uh, uh, federal election, they say 2019, 21, and that's been happening for quite a long time, and it's not just China, is when there's, there is going to be public inquiry, all the major parties approved the terms of reference, approved the appointment of a Quebec-based justice, who I believe is Justice Hogue. But are we even going to see much more than we've already seen? Because there's going to be plenty of classified, top-secret information that is never going to see the light of day. And some of that for a very good reason. It was important to do it because we have to have renewed, or pardon me, continued faith in the integrity and security of things like our elections and democratic institutions. But... Boy, there's a lot to that. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Brian's in the queue to talk about travel, or pardon me, wait time for a photo ID. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Brian, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? Good. I see that your hockey team, the Montreal Canadiens, beat my Chicago Blackhawks last week 3-2. to two. Yeah, then lost last night 5-2. And now with that injury to one of their key centers, Kirby Dak, oh. out for the year, not good. You know, I, I, I like Montreal. Uh, I didn't mind them beating our team. Chicago would make the same mistake as all our teams, thinking that one guy from the Watson Hockey League is going to become their savior. He's not doing too bad, but I think he's a much too small, you know, Paddy. 
So uh, good luck to you in Montreal and see what happens. You know, yeah. sure. uh, I got a bit of a problem. Okay. Uh, a couple of, well, back in September, I was going to go to out to uh, Saskatchewan and made uh, arrangements to go there. And the morning I was supposed to fly, I was diagnosed with COVID, so I couldn't go. Okay. So I rearranged my flight, and I'm going to fly this Monday, hopefully. But then I realized my my picture ID was was expired, and I had to go to the Department of Motor Vehicles uh, have it redone. So apparently, I went down had my picture taken whole nine yards, and I guess they got sent to Toronto. And uh, I think it's uh, three to five or three to fifteen days. Anyway, I may I may never get that. And they gave me a sheet of paper and said this is your this is a temporary photo ID. It basically just got my name and my new address. I'm out to move, and since I started talking to you, um, my new address and that. And I got a feeling that when I go down on Monday to try to get on the flight, I'm not going to get on. Is there anywhere I can have a photo ID done? Yeah, lots of places. Or you can get the photo done. I don't know if you're talking about the satisfying the end result ID. Like, what type of ID are you looking for? Oh, my name, my uh, color of my eyes, color of my hair. Do you have you a driver's know? license? I don't have a driver's license. I don't drive. So, and you need the ID for what purpose? I'm sorry? To get, get on the flight. Oh, to get on a flight. So, yeah. You can get an ID. You can get a passport. I know, but I, I, I can't. I got to go this Monday. I, I'm after losing the passport I had. It, it got old on me, you know. But I was wondering if there anything I can do to sort of sure up that I'll be able to fly, you know. Yeah, I don't know if there's an alternative beyond, well, it's got to be a government-issued ID to get on yeah. a flight. So for most, that's simply a driver's license and or a passport. I don't, off the top of my head, I can't even think of another acceptable ID. Just let me have a very quick look here. Yeah, um, okay. Acceptable ID to, uh, to travel via air. I'm pretty sure it's only those two, to be honest with you. One piece of valid, not expired, government-issued photo ID that includes name, date of birth, excluding fishing, hunting, or boating license. So it has to be ID requirements. So I'll just go over to the carrier's websites here. Yeah. Man, the Internet is some slow here. So, is, yeah. so travel within Canada, right? It's just domestic travel? Yeah. Yeah, and that's it. They don't offer anything beyond what the government of Canada said. So okay. one of the following. It's either a Nexus card, a passport, a U.S. permanent resident card, U.S. enhanced driver's license, or an international tri uh, travel document, i.e., yeah. your passport. Or two pieces of valid, not expired, government-issued, non-photo ID, one of which must show your name and date of birth, excluding fishing, hunting, and boating. The name on the uh, two pieces of ID must match. If the last names do not match due to a name change, the guest must present a marriage certificate or legal change of name certificate to verify the change. Da -da 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 -da. I got my birth certificate and my MCP card. Yeah. I, I'm not going to say yay or nay to that yeah. specifically because I don't want to shag you up when you go to the airport. I know, yeah. But I tell you what, Brian, I'll be able to figure that out by the end of the show. And certainly someone in the travel industry who knows the specific answer to that, they'll inevitably reach out to me. And I will say whatever information I can glean live on the program. Okay. Thanks a lot, Patty. No problem, Brian. You're a good man. I appreciate the time. Take care. Bye-bye. So Bye. obviously someone out there knows the answer to that question. 
because you know since I've been 18 I've always had a, an active uh, driver's license which is all you need to travel domestically and of course international travel requires a passport but even when they mention those two separate IDs and the exemption of, uh, available do you know exactly what that is is it satisfied with a birth certificate and an MCP card or a social insurance uh, card? I don't know. But if you know the answer, uh, you can let us know. Let's go to line number two. Wayne, you're on the air. Yeah, Patty, in answer to your question, I had a customer uh, board uh, run a shuttle back and forth to the airport. Okay. And uh, what she had to do, she had to go into Service Canada, and they printed up a picture, like a colored picture on a sheet of paper for her, explaining that so that she could actually fly back to Labrador. And that's how she done it, because she had lost her ID while she was here in Carnival. So, sorry, Wayne, there's a little bit of a, a crackle in my connection here. What exactly did she have? She went into Service Canada, and they printed up a colored picture of her ID oh, and okay. signed it and stamped it. It has to have the seal on it and everything else. But now it did cost her a few extra dollars, I think she said, and uh, but that's how she traveled back to Labrador. Excellent. So that's helpful. So Service Canada photo stamped and verified by a government organization. Secondly, I'm yes. now told also that you can go to motor vehicle and get a government-issued yes. photo ID that does not have to be a driver's license, of which I did not know. Yes, but uh, you still got to wait for that to come to the mails, and she needed it to travel right away. So, yes, go to Motor Vehicle, not Service Canada. Sorry, I made a mistake there. It is Motor Vehicle Registration, and they put a seal on the paper where they print your photo on, and uh, that's what she had to travel with to get back to Labrador because she was down here for two weeks and lost her ID while she was here. But in either for them to replace her ID, it was going to be mailed to her address in Labrador. So that's why she had to go through that process. I really appreciate the information because I really didn't know because since I've been at the age majority, I've always had a driver's license, and so I had no concerns when I traveled domestically, and of course, I keep an active passport available as well. So there you go, Brian. Make your way into motor vehicle. Go through the process there. You'll be all set because you're right. To wait for something in the mail is not going to satisfy a travel need on Monday coming, but uh, helpful stuff. I really appreciate this, Wayne. Not a problem. Take it easy. You too, man. All the best. Okay, bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, there we go. That's helpful. So, you know, I, I made mention to the fact that, again, we're just asking questions because there's, that's a smart thing to do, right? Isn't it? So there are people out there who are either 100% opposed and never want to see a wind turbine on land ever, period. If it's to generate domestic power and or to export hydrogen ammonia. Fair enough. And then, of course, there's the group that is 100% all in. They don't care what anyone else thinks. They're in. They don't care if people think there are legitimate questions to be asked. And, you know, I made reference to a story in the, finan uh, the Financial Post this morning about what one specific head fund manager thought about green hydrogen investment and whether or not it's going to be profitable short-term and or long-term. One person who's completely all in on hydrogen and asking questions apparently is a bad thing says there are fewer questions than I suggest. And as some did, the rest of the world moves forward. That the fully re implemented regulations in the EU guaranteed increased uptake, uh, a.k.a. H2. No one looks to head fund managers for guidance anymore, by the way. Okay, that's a pretty big declaration for starters. And a hedge fund manager, their only role in life is to evaluate business models, profitability as to whether or not it's worth their investment dollar and the profits they'll reap from. So there's no doubt that people who do nothing but think about money, 
that want to make money and how to make money, regardless of who's negatively impacted, doesn't make hedge fund managers good guys. In large part, they're black hats. So, <laughs> but people do listen because they only want business success. They're not in the, you know, they're not the Carl Icons of the world. They're not going in trying to blow things up and sell them for used parts. They're talking about making money. And if they're unable to satisfy profitability in the green hydrogen sector at this moment in time, then we're just adding it to the equation. I have to say, it's eternally frustrating when you, well, all anyone's trying to do is get as much information as possible on a, every issue that we discuss. So, because information's power. And it just kind of blows my mind that so many people are willing to look down their nose because they're supporters of one thing or another, and you ask a question, and all of a sudden you're a contrarian for the sake of, or you don't know what you're talking about. You know, we're asking questions, man. Give it a rest. We're on Twitter. We're VOSM Open Line. You know what to do. Follow us there. Offer your suggestions, even like the one that I just read to that is, anyway, confusing. Uh, email address is openline.vocm.com. But let's take a break for the news right on time. When we come back, Al's there to talk about air travel. Terry's there to talk about IDs. Also, let's talk about the police station. Okay, don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Al, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How's you going, boy? Best kind. How about you? I'm alive, man. Uh, just calling in regarding the ID thing. Now, I just ran in the exact same problem when I was in uh, Vancouver trying to fly home. Uh, so I, I lost my ID, didn't have any. So I actually got a, the printed out uh, driver's license, couriered out from Newfoundland to BC, because that's uh, exactly what you were talking about with the Service Canada, uh, full color printed thing and it was my actual driver's license uh i was flying flair airlines and they wouldn't take it uh they ended up getting the rcmp to come by and through the jigs and the reels of it it took about an hour and a half of arguing with these people uh the police did say yeah this is exactly who he says he is he's the guy on the id uh this is all he should have to fly and by that time my flight was gone and uh this was flair airlines they refused to give me any money back uh, it was a bit of a bit of an issue, so I had to buy a whole new plane ticket. So, if somebody's going to use that form to go to the airport, I would highly recommend being there hours and hours and hours beforehand, because the people at the service desk might not know about it. That's the problem I ran into. And uh, like I said, by the time the uh, the cops came by and uh, and told them I was who I was, the, the plane was gone. So, uh, yeah, just a bit of advice that it doesn't always work. Sound advice, because someone sent along a link for some of these photo ID applications and appointments, and it says right at the top, Canadian Airlines are asking for photo identification from passengers. Always check with the airline to confirm which photo identification they will accept. I guess, as you rightfully point out, Flair probably wouldn't, Flair wouldn't accept it, but that doesn't mean WestJet would, wouldn't have either. So just check with your airline which is always solid advice and to make sure you know that you've got what you need to present to the uh, to the clerk and to be able to be able to gain passage so they will be able to provide you with something but make sure that your airline will accept it I will on that note Patty I'd like to say that I did end up flying back with WestJet and WestJet would accept it there they, you go they did take it <laughs> it wasn't that but flare it was like pulling teeth so just words of the wise 
and it should be standard, right? Because if an ID is good for good enough for WestJet, it should be good enough for Air Canada, it should be good enough for Flair, it should be good enough for PAL, it should be good enough for Porter, right? Well, you would think in yeah. a world that makes sense, but this world we live in doesn't make sense, Patty. You know that. <laughs> Unfortunately so. <laughs> All right, my buddy. Thanks for taking my call. I appreciate the time. Thanks, Al. All right. Take care, Patty. You're Cheers. welcome. Bye-bye. You take care, too. And so what you need to bring to your appointment, if that's the route you're going to take, and hopefully Brian's listening so he has these documents available, you must be a resident of this province to apply for a photo identification card. Proof of address will be required. We accept the following documents as proof of your address. Utility bills, your internet bill, cable bill, no older than two months. Bank statements, void check with address, mortgage documents, personal taxes filed the previous year, property tax bill, residential lease or rental agreement must be completed and signed by landlord and tenant, employment insurance or income support program documents, employment confirmation or a pay stub, and or the, can uh, the Canada Child Benefit documents will be needed to add two of those to make sure that you'll be able to get that identification. Let's go to line number one. Terry, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Morning. Uh, to Mr. trying to get his uh, ID for a fly. Yeah. Uh, we were, I ran into the same problem with my father. We were on our way to PEI, and I said, Dad, where's your license to? And he said, I turned it in because he was losing his eyesight, right? Uh -huh. I said, you should have never have done that. So anyway... He wanted to turn back and go home. I said, no, we'll f I'll figure something out. So when I got to Deer Lake, I went up to motor registrations and asked them would they take his photo. And uh, they said, no, the girl comes out on Wednesdays, because this was a Monday, right? So I said, very good. I said, where's the police station? <clears throat> so she told me, so I w worked my way up there and knocked on the door or rang the bell that was there, and the constable came out. And uh, <clears throat> she said, yes, can I help you? I said, yes, uh, I'm looking to get an ID for my father, a picture ID. And she said, uh, just a second, now I'll go in and talk to the superintendent. And when she came back, she uh, said, yes, come on in. So he went in and had his picture took and uh, went up to the airport. They stamped it with their official signature and got up to the airport, and the missus in the airport said, well, you didn't really need that photo ID. <clears throat> so I said, very good. We got it anyway. So they let us on the plane, away we went. But on our return back from PEI, he wasn't going to be allowed on the plane unless he had that picture stamped by the RCMP, right, because he had turned in his photo. <clears throat> so... So skippers should go up, and if the RCMP are willing, or, or the RNC out in St. John's are willing to take his picture and stamp it, he'll have no problems. Yeah, I, to me, it looks like probably the easiest thing. Well, that might work. I, I have no earthly idea. But I heard from a friend of mine who's in the banking business, and some of their elderly clients will maybe let their driver's license expire because it has to be inside the expiry date. People are recommending them far and wide here. Motor vehicle might be the clearest option and something that's proven to be true. So what what are you telling me? The RCMP will take your photo and stamp it with what? Like, what does that actually look well, like at the well, end of the day? Well, they got a signature. They signed it. Uh, okay. But we had no problems. Uh, now, in Deer Lake, they would let us get on the plane with just two pieces of ID. But from PEI back to Newfoundland, they wanted his picture. Right? 
So we had the picture, and it was signed by them, saying, you know, the RCM official signature. They got a stamp there or something, okay. or they yeah. sign it. Yeah, and we had no problems that way. So Helpful that's advice. That's a good, uh, you know, the option that, because our plane was leaving in about two hours, and I didn't have much time to spare trying to get up to the airport, right? But well, they took him in, took his picture, and I said, Dad, now don't smile. you got to look like a criminal. <laughs> like on the movies, you know, don't smile. So, um, yeah, they took him in, signed it, and off we went. I've often... trying, to get back to, trying to get back to Newfoundland, that would have been a problem about getting off. They would have took us, right? Okay, interesting. You know, I've never really fully understood why you have to have such a glum face for the picture for your license and or your passport. Yeah. I don't really know what the issue is there. Yeah, I know. I don't know either. But you're not allowed to smile. <laughs> no, and consequently, most of our photos on licenses and passports are less than flattering. Yes, that's right. You should see my driver's license. I look like a vampire. Yeah, I, I look like a menace in mine. <laughs> anyway, that's it, Patty. But I appreciate it, Terry. Oh, thanks. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, fine. Now. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, All bye. right, so there you go. I mean, and that's sometimes the real strength and the beauty of the shows. Brian had a question. I didn't know because I've never encountered it. I've always simply had the ID because I had an active driver's license and I've long had a passport, so it hasn't been something I've had to broach in the past. So there are some of the also the moving parts that you have to consider when you go to more vehicles. So I just told you what you need to bring to your appointment. There's also the opportunity for service. And Alan Brian or Terry just mentioned the RCMP. There's also an issue that you might need to be concerned with. Say, for instance, if you go by your married name, but your birth certificate reflects your maiden name, there's other issues that have to be broached there. Like you need one secondary identity document, like your social insurance card, a credit card, a marriage certificate, school identification card, your MCP card, healthcare board card. So there's a few moving parts because, you know, many people will indeed be traveling with their married name. And if they've gone for one of these IDs, but the names don't match up because, of course, you now have adopted your married name. So... Anyway, we're getting a lot of information flowing in here, which, of course, is no question helpful. While Dave is figuring out the caller that's in the queue there, let's make a reference back to the uh, Twitter box or VOCM Open Line. And if you sent me an email or a private message with some of this information that we've been trying to share with Brian and others, I'll try to reply as many as I can. But thank you very much for doing what you're doing because the information is absolutely power. One conversation that we had broached yesterday with a caller and I think it's important to keep on the front burner, is the need for the government to consider amending the statute of limitations regarding abuse. Since the Hughes inquiry looking at Mount Cashel, of course, they took sexual assault, sexual abuse out of the statute of limitations, and so they can forever and a day see civil action. But that does not include any exemptions for physical, mental, emotional abuse, physical in particular. So again, it's not in an effort to equate them but it's to acknowledge that the trauma can be very, very similar regardless of that type of abuse. So there's the one case, Jack Whalen, of course, and his daughter, Brittany, along with Lynn Moore, are trying to pursue the legal angler with the Supreme Court of, uh, of Newfoundland and Labrador. So, yes, someone asked why we didn't bring that up. I don't think they heard this conversation we had yesterday. But, of course, we try to, you know, sprinkle around different topics, different days. But if that's something you want to discuss, because there's going to be dozens or hundreds or maybe even thousands, I don't know, 
of people who have suffered physical abuse and gone beyond the statute, and then, of course, no opportunity for redress. Let's take a break. When we come back, Rod's in the queue to talk about carbon capture. Excellent. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go to line number one. Good morning, Rod. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you doing today? Excellent. Thank you. How about you? No, pretty good. We're actually heading down to St. John's today. Uh, the wife and I, my daughter and granddaughter, are heading down there for for an appointment down there uh, for tomorrow and that. So we'll spend a couple of days down there and enjoy your neck of the woods for a while. Coming in from where, Rod? Uh, Millertown. Okay. And Southbrook. The daughter's from Southbrook, and the wife and I are in Millertown. Okay. Sounds good. So, Safe travels. Uh, we're coming down. Yes, thank you. See, uh, Patty, uh, on the ID part for airplanes and stuff like that uh my two oldest grandkids before they got their driver's license uh or did anything like uh the kids there they took the the course for your pal and hunter ed well they had to get a photo id and that's what they did they went to uh to the motor vehicle branches and you can get a photo id and gives your birth date and everything on there just just like the driver's license so uh, for people that are traveling and, and uh, get papers printed off and stamped and all that, just go in the motor vehicles and ask for a photo ID, and you can get it done. Yeah, apparently so. Helpful info. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, uh, on this carbon, uh, carbon uh, capture, uh, Patty, how in the heck are they going to catch some carbon when it's something that you can't see? It's in the air, but you can't see it. So... <sighs> <laughs> Good question. So I've tried to read more about it because it's becoming a big conversation here. And you know, recently as yesterday, the government talking about it in this province with $6 million to, you know, carbon capture, transportation, and to inject it into depleted oil fields and whether or not it works. There's lots of big reports. Look, it very much feels like the oil industry talks about carbon capture because they're saying that we can, you know, uh, you capture the flue gas at a fossil fuel burning mm-hmm. industrial plant, and then do something to store it. It kind of feels like they're telling us that they've got it figured out. They know how to capture the carbon. But there's some pretty recent studies out there. I read one from the MIT Climate Portal about the efficiency of carbon capture. The Canadian Geographic has a report out there. There was a report that was published in the New York Times not long ago. And they mm-hmm. looked at 15 of the flagship carbon capture projects that are currently in existence. And the proponents were telling that they could capture about 80 to 90 percent of the emissions and the carbon then when this report looked at it the uh, the net emissions were captured more like 10 to 15 percent so there's a long way between 15 percent and 90 percent so the question the question is simply is does it work if it does great let's do it right makes all the sense yeah. in the world to try to do something that's going to work but i think there's still looming questions as to whether or not it does and I guess that's well, some of the research that they're going to do here for the potential uh, to store it offshore. I, I think what they're going to wind up thinking that they're going to hit the nail on the head, but uh, it's going to be a long time before they actually drill that nail down to uh, do all this. What I see, like when we drive our vehicles down down the road, we're emitting carbon out the exhaust. Yep. And uh, same with your furnaces. And if you're having a campfire, you're burning fuel, but you're also emitting carbon. And the best way that I know of that omits, uh, that takes away carbon is photosynthesis. Your trees. Yeah, your well, that's, they're a carbon sink. That's true, yeah. Yeah. 
and uh, they take the carbon, they turn it into oxygen. And I'm, I was thinking about, you know, with Newfoundland, you know, 85% of this province, as far as I know of, is mostly trees. So we cannot have that big of a carbon uh, a problem here in Newfoundland. Well, if you just take the four operating offshore oil fields, they make up about 14% of the overall emissions. So carbon capture is really only an applicable conversation to industrialize the centers, you know, fossil fuel burning platforms, what have you. So it's not about the emissions between me and you and transportation necessarily. Mm -hmm. That becomes an alternative fuel source conversation. Carbon capture is simply about the big industrial applications. Yeah, but yet uh, you and me and every Tom, Dick, and Harry on the island, we're going to be paying the, the carbon tax. Yep. You know, so it just I just could not wrap my head around it. Uh, my daughter there was looking online there about uh, uh, carbon and that, and there's a scientist, and I really chuckled over this, down in the U.S., developing some kind of laser that will strike the carbon molecules and actually turn it back into oxygen. I said to his daughter, I said, what, what? what are you going to do, run around with these lasers all over the place or what? You know? I, I have no idea about that, about that yeah, issue. Yeah. It, it just it just boggles my mind when they say you captured the carbon and that. And, uh, and you know and I know it's in the air and, uh, you know, how are they going to filter the air out? You know, it just it just boggles my mind when when they talk stuff like that you know and i think on the right uh choices uh these uh industries uh for the oils and all that uh there must be a way that they can do that before they actually take stuff out of the ground and just leave it in the ground you know and that's where our scientists and that come in and that and to develop stuff and that and uh and i would still say you know this carbon tax that we have here is just really a tax that uh, puts a lot of hurt on a lot of people, and that's throughout the country. Yeah, I mean, and uh, this is not my number. This is the PBO, the Parliamentary Budget Office. Inside the carbon tax conversation, of course, to extend it to its fullest, is the evaluation is that 80% of folks who pay the carbon tax will get what they pay in or more back in the form of the rebate. It's the big users, the big consumers, the richest folks who have a bigger carbon footprint. They will absolutely pay more carbon tax than they'll ever see in a rebate. So we've got to include that in the conversation here. If there's the possibility, and look, I don't lean on the carbon tax. Make no mistake. I don't think it should be on home heating fuels, period, to be honest with you. Because we have no choice. We're a northern country. We have to heat our home. It's a necessity of life. You know, we can adjust the way we travel via car or public transit or all those types of things. But Mm -hmm. if there's a conversation that includes what a tax looks like, and in this front, you know, even I think when we see about Canadians being polled about a carbon tax, and the majority now would, you know, like to revisit it. But I would think mm-hmm. that when Canadians are asked about, would you like to pay less tax? They're going to say, yeah. <laughs> you know, of that's course. just one of those things. People don't want to pay yeah. more tax, you know, even though it provides all the services that we all, or many of us use. But yeah, mm-hmm. nobody wants to pay taxes, even though, no, for the obvious no. reasons. Yeah. Uh, Rod, I appreciate the time. Hopefully the appointment yeah. is nothing too serious that you're making your way to town for. Uh, well, we uh, our little one here, the granddaughter here, she's got to go to the Janeways. Uh, so there is some stuff there that we got to see the doctors and that about, and uh, hopefully they can get things figured out for her. Hopefully so, Rod. I, fingers crossed for a positive outcome, and thanks for your time. Safe travels. Thank you very much. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye.
Yeah, we will. Like, I mean, there was the, the person who was representing the Memorial University at that announcement yesterday. Uh, let's see if I can grab the name here very quickly. And, David, let's see if we can get this person out because they were thinking that maybe we can do this. Maybe this is actually manageable. And the academic in question here is, boys oh, boys, uh, it's Professor James. He leads the Hibernia Research Group at Memorial University. Uh, where's his name here in this news article? wish they wrote these things a little clearer so I could find things quickly when I need them. Anyway, Dave, me and you will figure out that name, and we will go ahead and ask if that person is able to join us here on the program tomorrow to walk us through the process. Let's go. Line number two. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hi there. Hi. Uh, thank you for taking my call. I appreciate it. No problem. Uh, I am calling regarding nuisance animals. Uh, I live in a small town. And uh, we have a couple of dogs. Actually, I just live just outside of town. Uh, we have a couple of dogs that uh, are constantly uh, running around, and they have attacked several dogs and even killed a dog. Um, and, and they have actually one of them has attacked my dog uh, just um, a couple of weeks ago. And I have obviously been in touch with the RCMP. Uh, RCMP has told me that they don't really know what the rules are, and therefore they just kind of issue fines, which aren't even enforced, as far as I understand. And uh, these people just continue to be able to keep their dogs unleashed. The dogs are running around. I have it on video. I have even have security cameras at my home. Um, and so I have videos of these dogs, or at least the one, mostly, uh, coming on to the property and even the dog attack against my own animal. Uh, like I said, I, I contacted RCMP. I have contacted the SPCA. I have contacted Animal Welfare. And no one has been able to tell me what my rights are, what the laws are. And I am being here held hostage. And I'm hoping that you can lend a helping hand. I think you should contact uh, the Department of Wildlife to be honest with you, because they deal with the whole concept of nuisance animals? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I have contacted them. Oh, okay. And I was told in a very roundabout way uh, that the rules are very obscure and uh, they deal more with, you know, wildlife. Yeah, bears and coyotes dogs. and moose and the like, yeah. Yes. So I'm stumped and, I, again, I'm being held hostage. I have the invisible fence, so my dog gets to roam around our property freely um, and... Uh, because of these dogs, he can't, he's he, like I said, he was attract, attacked on our property. So now I have to go to work and I have to leave my dog uh, out in the open because I can't leave him in all day. He's used to being outside and I, quite honestly, he might have the house ruined by the time I get home. I don't know. But, um, you know, I'm being held hostage. I'm surprised there's not a control process in place for a nuisance dog because I know and I just nope. was grasping at straws was saying the Department of Wildlife because I know they do have a nuisance uh, animal program that they can uh, employ yeah but it's more towards wildlife yes, even if you look at anything you, you can google anything uh, about dog uh, about nuisance animals and there's very little mentioned about um, dogs and it's very vague at that um, and nobody seems, I mean, when the RCMP is telling me that they don't know, that they have uh, an email put out to the Crown to find out, and that was like two months ago and nothing, nothing's happened yet, uh, you know, it's really concerning. Of course it is. 
if yeah. it's uh, putting your your dog in danger. I'm going to open up the Animal Health and Protection Act, which is pretty old. It's at least a decade old. I'll see if I can find anything therein that can have okay. some association with the problem that you're facing. I've got a funny feeling that it's going to be much more the wild animal as well as opposed to a yeah. domesticated dog. But I will look yeah. for that information because I'm surprised between the SPCAs and the community where you live or the RNC or the RSMP, no one's got any idea what to do here. There's got to be yeah. something even the township, uh, Even the town um, township says they don't really know anything. They're, it's, not, it's not within their scope, I guess, which just makes zero sense to me. I moved here from Ontario where there's uh, laws for everything, too many laws. And I move here and, uh, you know, people have no rights when, when the bad guy is not, um, you know, doing his due diligence. Fair enough. Uh, so what we're going to do here is play the audience game again. Just like while we got all that helpful information about photo IDs for travel, somebody uh-huh. listening to the program this morning has had to have faced this type of circumstance and had some sort of way to get to a positive outcome for the nuisance animal to be removed or to be dealt with or whatever the right reference is here. So during this yeah. newscast, do your thing, audience. Get in the queue, get on the air, give some advice to this lady who's trying to deal with a real distinct safety problem. That would be great. I would greatly appreciate that. And if you have anything, that any advice or anything that you might find, I would appreciate that as well. Yeah, we've got your number. We'll pass it along. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let me check that email because I see a couple fly in out of the corner of my eye. Uh, okay. Let's see. Um, so apparently there's a law that if a dog is entitled to a bite after the first bite, they are put down. But who's responsible for collecting that dog to enforce anything that might or may not be on the books? Because she had a devil of a time or continues to have a hard time coming up with anyone who's able to share some helpful info. So if you are that person and you know what to do, let us know. So get in the queue to talk about that or listen, whatever you want to talk about. And tell me some good news, sure, right after the news. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Michael. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Um, Yeah, just calling in regards to the uh, lady there that had the issue with the nuisance dog. Um, I live out uh, Bay Roberts Way, and we have a, a dog catcher that's actually between... Uh, several of the the towns there um, most people would only recognize that he services Bay Roberts area but he actually services some of the communities around as well so I don't know if she might try reaching out to some of the surrounding communities to see if they have a dog catcher in the area yeah I mean it used to be in the hands of the RC, uh, pardon me the SPCA as well right they had those what do they call them uh deputized uh, bylaw enforcement officers, but that's gone by the wayside as far as I can tell. Someone just sent me a link to the uh, Chapter A 9-9.1 in the Animal Health and Protection Act, and apparently it says the role is in the hands of the RNC and the RCMP. But she also said that she called the police, and they said they were unable to help. So there's a disconnect here somewhere. If the Act says it's their responsibility, then I guess it's as fundamental as that. It's their responsibility. Yeah, I mean, if if that's in the act there and she has no, say, dog catcher in the area, I'd get a copy of the act and walk into the office and ask them to uh, please assist. A hundred percent. So, uh, of course, when you look at a piece of legislation, it's uh, 
pretty broad stuff, but I will dig into this a little further and see if we can't uh, reconnect that disconnect because if things have changed regarding whose control, you know, for instance, and another helpful email said, you know, after the first bite, dogs will be taken and potentially put down. The question then is, who's responsible for that? <laughs> because it's fine to say that, okay, great, well, this is the rules, but if you don't have someone who's going to be able to enforce the rule on your behalf, then it's only worth the papers printed on. Exactly, yeah. All right, I'll try to find those answers. Yeah, pretty tricky stuff. And, you know, trying to do it live and sift through legislation is not very helpful either or manageable, but I'll see what I can figure out. No doubt. Hopefully she gets some resolution because, like I said, we, we had the same issue and uh, the person in our neighborhood got uh, uh, two tickets and then was told if it happens again, the, the animal would be seized. Well, we are going to get her help. Now this thing is like a bee in my bonnet because I'm going to figure this one out. <laughs> there you go. Thanks, Michael. All right. All the best. You too, Bye. sir. Bye-bye. All right. Big thanks to Nora over at Munn, who was listening in, and I was struggling to find the name of the professor who was in attendance at yesterday's uh, announcement regarding this whole process of the, 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 the carbon storage, uh, the potential to you know use depleted oil fields to inject some of the carbon that's captured and transported, however, through ship and or pipeline. So very helpful in giving me the uh, contact information. And the name is Dr. Leslie James, professor and former uh, Chevron Chair of Petroleum Engineering in the Department of Process Engineering at Memorial University. And also she heads up the Hibernia Enhanced Oil Recovery Laboratory and apparently a great speaker. So we will 100% reach out to Dr. Leslie James because, you know, when we talk about these big pieces of tech, Obviously, there's people listening to the program know exactly how it works, have read studies or are process engineers themselves and can help walk us through it because that's the best thing for me. Certainly, I would imagine it's the best thing for folks out there because if we're looking at it as a provincial opportunity, if we're talking about millions of dollars to evaluate and investigate how this works, will it work, opportunities it may present to the people of the province, then getting folks who are actually, you know, I know that all of a sudden that experts aren't believed in some corners anymore. But, you know, the person who is the, uh, the process engineer who is going to be in charge of evaluating this potential, we'll see if we can get Dr. Leslie James on the program to walk us through. Because there are some confusing things out there, even as the fundamental of not whether or not it's going to work to inject it into an oil field, but exactly how carbon is captured at the source, at the flume or at the flue, how you separate the gas, how efficient it's proven to be. Because, again, in the reports that are very current, when we were told that you know carbon capture can work to ninety, to, uh, pardon me, eighty to ninety percent of the carbon emitted can be captured, the reports that are very recent, they don't seem to point to that at all. So again, Dr. Leslie James, who would have her finger on the pulse and read these reports and incorporate it in how they deliver curriculum and talk about processes in the engineering world, absolutely will be much more helpful than me trying to decipher very technical reports and try to bring as much information as I can, as succinctly as I can, because some things are absolutely requiring uh, other voices, and hopefully we can organize that for tomorrow. And also someone wanted me to you know, expand on what I said what I think is one of the most irritating issues regarding the price of groceries. And you know, we can talk about skimpflation, and food inflation, and shrinkflation. That's the one that's starting to bother me more than any other thing when I go to the grocery store. So again, Nobody's breaking any rules or breaking any laws here, but there is that essence of deception. And I find that to be pretty frustrating. 
So people are experiencing, uh, since, since I mentioned it, all kinds of pictures and examples have been offered, whether it be with purely hard bread, the hard tack, boxes of cereal, and a lot of products that are in the grocery store. So undeniably, the input costs and transportation costs have increased, and consequently there's going to be cost increases passed along to consumers. It's just the nature of the beast. But when some of it feels kind of like trickery at play, so the product that you bought for 5 bucks that had 500 grams, and you're paying 6 bucks for it now, but it's only 400 grams, and we're not really told until you find out the hard way after purchase. In some countries, what the requirement is, by law, is that it is widely displayed on the label, the change in the content packaging. Yes, we'll see that there's going to be some changes to uh, ingredients based on different costs for some of the different ingredients in play, and people will uh, feel that with their senses, right? Their sense of taste possibly, or smell. But when we're simply talking about the weight of the product in the package, that's less, and you're still paying the same or more, that's where I think there's a bit of federal standards can address some of those concerns. It's not going to mean that the manufacturers can't do it. It's just going to mean that we'll, we'll be more aware of it. So if you've always been buying X product, and one of their competitors has not followed suit with shrinkflation, maybe you'll just simply uh, change the way you buy, change your behaviors, change the product. You know, they're all very, very similar when we talk about some of the staples of the day. So, yeah, that's what we mean by shrinkflation. Let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, there's a caller who wants to talk about flu shots. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Okay, let's go to line number uh, one. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hi. Hi there. Eddie? Yes. Um, I'm a senior, and my wife's a senior, and we're living in a senior's complex and because of medical problems, we can't get out to get our flu shot. And I understood there's a, a number you can call to get someone to come to a residence and give you your flu shot. Would you know uh, a, a telephone number for me? Yeah, there was also uh, that play was in place for COVID shots, too. Let's well, that's see. what I mean, get both of it, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I can find that number for you, I'm pretty sure. So... Let me, I'll have a quick look here. So what type of medical concern, if you don't mind me asking, uh, keeps you from being able, unable pardon me, to get out? Uh, getting personal. My wife had a stroke. Oh, I'm sorry, Terry. You needn't answer my uh, personal prying question. Don't worry about that. No, I'm just saying, I, you know, I don't mind telling you, but everybody else hears it too. Yes, I understand. So we, we can leave it at that. So I'll go right to the flu clinics right here. This should have information about the potential to get one uh, in your own home. Uh, for, for frail or homebound clients only. Okay, so are, where are you living? Which part of the province? In around town? I'm in Mount Pearl. You're in Mount Pearl. Okay, so I have a number for you. Okay. It's toll free. It's 1-833-951-2222. Yeah. Uh, Three eight eight four. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I hope that that uh, works out. Like I said, I don't mind going out, but it is a little bit of a problem now getting two of us out. Yeah. It says uh, for very frail or home homebound individuals who cannot travel to a public flu clinic or visit a pharmacist or a doctor, you can arrange a home visit by calling one of the numbers listed below, and the one I gave you was for the eastern, urban, and rural zones at one eight three three nine five one three eight eight four. Very good. Okay, thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Good luck. All right, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye to you. 
And of course, uh, when we talk about seniors, there is a high dose uh, flu vaccine for seniors. There's a couple of different ones out there. I think one is called Fluad, and that uh, what is it called? An adjuvenated, inactivated influ influenza vaccine, licensed for persons 65 years of age or older. They talk about the necessary high dose flu vaccine for seniors for the obvious reasons. So if you are a senior and cannot get out uh, to get your flu vaccine or any other vaccine, and of course, they're offering the COVID booster now. You can get it if you like, don't if you don't. And you can get them both done at the same time, one in each arm apparently, if that's something that would be a time-saving issue for you. There's also the opportunity to make group or family bookings. So the whole family to make it in one, kit one, uh, one fell swoop as opposed to four different days and four different appointments. If back-to-back -back appointments are preferred but not available at the time of booking, those with confirmed separate appointments can arrive at the clinic together and will be accommodated wherever possible. So, you know, it's, I don't know if it's interesting, but it's some sort of conversation about the efficacy, right? You know, in years past, there was really active campaigns about encouraging people to get their flu shot. And, of course, the creation of the flu vaccine, we see what happens in the southern hemisphere, for instance, in Australia, and try to... Uh, pinpoint which strain of the flu will make it to this part of the world and to uh, create a vaccine to mimic that particular strain. And over the years, there's been many examples where the, uh, the eff efficacy pardon me, of a seasonal influenza, uh, influenza vaccine has been pretty low. You know, some years they get it much, much close to right, I'll call it, versus some of the fairly ineffective vaccines that have been produced over the years. It didn't get a whole lot of attention. It didn't get a whole lot of pushback. Very much different than what we're talking about with the you-know-what vaccination and what that means and how it works and how it was advertised from the onset. Okay, so lots of questions coming in about the so-called five-point housing plan that has been put forward and some of the monies associated with it. So we ran down through some of the ups and the downs of the particular uh, plan yesterday, and we can do it again today. One of the issues that was being broached is the repurposing and to get some of the uh, units owned and operated by the Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation. And what's going on there that I thought was of note was that they're talking about $3 million to repair to renovate approximately 143 vacant NLHC units, Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation. In an effort to satisfy those repairs and renovations and to spend the $3 million, they're talking about going out to the private sector. Now, there's always been the concept of that there's too many people working in the public sector, right? The public sector bloat and fair ball, and I think that's absolutely accurate. On this front, when we ran into a, a time and a place where there were so many of these units vacant and the housing crudge that's in front of us, there used to be, and I don't know what the complement of staff looks like, we're trying to figure it out, but to avoid this and to avoid the societal issue that comes with the lack of units and or repurposing of government buildings, because it's hard to get a contractor. You know, now contractors, especially the bigger ones, a government contract is perfect piece of business to engage in. But if we were able to keep some of these units from being shuttered, we could have probably avoided the inability for some 143 families to be housed in these units, which would go a pretty long way to curing some of this, the Ill issues and the ills we see with the number of units that have closed. And we could dig a little further in to all of the five attached points, but let's get another call on one. Daryl, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. How are you doing today? I'm okay, Daryl. How about you? Oh, good. Thanks. Uh, Patty, I was calling about uh, 
I heard about this website uh, uh, through another uh, source, and uh, it's called connectionsforseniors.ca. And uh, so happened when I heard about it, I had to research it. I like researching. And uh, I think uh, there's a nonprofit in St. John's, uh, 55 and over to help seniors in all aspects, affordability, health, transportation, legal, and so forth. And uh, I heard about it, so I want to share with your listening audience because probably a lot of seniors don't know about this. And uh, so I just thought I'd share that website. is Connections for Sen- connectionforseniors.ca. Yeah, we've actually had so, him on the show in the past, Jeff. Oh, you, oh, you had him on the show. Okay, yeah. I didn't know, right? So I, so I just thought I'd take the liberty to uh, make the phone call and uh, share it with your uh, listening audience. Sure. I mean, they do a lot of things. They're involved in the personal care home program. they got a transportation program, a home share program, emergency housing, food security. So there's a lot to it. What do you want to tell us about? Uh, no, so that's why I just want to bring to your attention there. Now, I know they're at, the only place they're set up is in St. John's there, but I just thought I'd uh, share that knowledge. I wasn't aware that you guys uh, uh, had them on the show and so forth, but I just thought I'd bring that to attention to your listening audience and any seniors listening to your show. Absolutely, and as soon as I heard about it, because we do know that we have a significant portion of the listening public, you know, right through young people, but certainly seniors, and sometimes... If you're not told about a program, you'll never consider accessing the program. So as soon as we heard that this was a not-for-profit being uh, operated out of St. John's, we had them on because they do provide a lot of important services, you know, especially in emergency accommodations. Now, adults 55 years of age and older, they have a transportation program, supportive housing program that comes with, with some wraparound services. So they do a lot of important work. They seem to be a great organization. And I think you're right. I think they're probably underutilized because so many people don't even know they exist. No, no, exactly. And, and I think it's uh, uh, too bad. Uh, hopefully, they expand, expand across the province. I know it's just in uh, St. John's, but uh, I'll, I'll tweak something else there as well. May, may, uh, they're a nonprofit, and they're always, I know, I noticed they're looking for donations to uh, keep their doors open. So maybe this is something that the, the Newfoundland Labrador government could subsidize this in helping people and, and aiding in all aspects like what you just mentioned. So maybe Newfoundland Labrador government should uh, step up to the plate as well and, and help this organization and expand their offices right across the province. Yeah, I don't know if we actually uh, got a question. I can't remember exactly what it was about core funding. They may have some core funding in place, but that's something I'd have to revisit and ask them directly. But, you know, many groups like this, do have uh, some core funding, probably not enough core funding coming from the government, but yes, I'm happy to figure that out. Yeah, so maybe that's something uh, you could probably talk about more in depth. And uh, and uh, if they if they don't have the core funding, well, th- I think that option should definitely be explored because I mean, uh, our seniors are, are very vital. They're very important. I got a lot of respect for our seniors. And uh, when we look at it, wouldn't for our seniors. We will meet World War II today, so let's look after our seniors and do what we can, especially at this point in time and, and what's happening now daily, like, you know, the cost of everything and so forth. So let's do our utmost and look after our seniors. I don't think anyone's going to argue that point, Gerald. I appreciate it. Maybe it's time to reach out to Connection for Seniors another time, Dave, and see if they like to come on because guaranteed not everybody who could use their services uh, even knows that they're around. So we'll do that. We'll have them back on. They seem like a great group. 
Yeah, so that that'll be that'll be great, and they could go into depth and explain everything uh, thoroughly, and uh, and I I think it's all good. I was, I was sort of glad I heard that about that there uh, this morning, actually, from another source, and uh, so I said, hmm, that caught my attention. So I just thought I shared uh, knowledge with your uh, listening audience. I appreciate you doing exactly that, Daryl. Thanks for the call. Okay, thank you, Patty, and all the best to you and your staff and uh, your listening audience. Thanks. Same to you, Daryl. Or thank you. Take, Take care. care. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah, they seem to be a great group. And, Dave, let's see if we can do that because I'm sure some people th- heard about them for the first time and maybe would, uh, was now able to take advantage of some of their services and programs because they have a pretty comprehensive suite of services that they do offer. So let's do that. All right, good show today. Big thanks to all hands who support the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right, on, right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.